Blog Talk Radio. And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn. Well, it used to be that way, when almost anything can happen. Now, of course, it's uh, 24-7, so maybe I should kind of change this approach to the show. But I'll never put this on at noon, because it just does not belong at noon. It belongs on the other side of midnight. Hey, we have got some really intriguing on several fronts, breaking news. It's very hard, you know, when you do a show like this to kind of catch the the front of the wave and to be part of something that's unfolding in real time. Well, tonight we have two major stories that are kind of connected to the conversation that's going to take place between Rick and Laura and me for the rest of the evening. So let me uh, direct our new listeners to where you want to go, because remember, this is a program that has images. It has links. It just doesn't have our faces on it. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Oh, I love radio. Anyway, uh, what you want to do is you go to the homepage, which is the other side of midnight.com. You click on that. That will take you to our URL, our homepage. And then you're going to want to click on tonight's banner, which says, what happens next? Earth's Hyperdimensional Astrology Post-Trump with Rick Levine and Laura London. And we'll get to those folks uh, in a moment. Then you want to click on that. That takes you to the guest page tonight. And then you have fast links under it. Uh, What you want to do is click on Richard. That's my fast links in Radio with Pictures. Um, Our number one story tonight is the same as it was last night. If you have type O blood you have a 13% chance, according to very large trials now, uh, of living through this thing, this whatever this thing is that we're living through in 2020. 13%, that's not trivial. That's pretty significant. So all you folks out there who do not have type O blood, you need to be obviously more cautious. And again, as I said last night, it's so simple Masks and distance, masks and distance. This has been the way to defeat pandemics of everything, every airborne disease for literally hundreds of years. So why are we divided as a country to where half the country is doing it and the other half says over my dead body, which in some cases turns out to be literal. Anyway, item number two, this is the breaking news. As I told you last night, the Chinese had successfully entered lunar orbit with a very sophisticated unmanned mission, Chang-5. Remember, Chang refers to the Chinese goddess of the moon. Oh, I should have put the um, the Chang-3 uh, thing up there so people could kind of get familiar with uh, the goddess of the moon and the Chinese mythology and what they're up to. Um, well, I'll, I'll, when Kinthea gets back, Kinthea's not with us tonight because she's taken 
couple of days off for an incredibly well-deserved vacation. I talked to her this afternoon from the middle of nowhere. Both of us are in the middle of nowhere. And she sounded, frankly, happier than I've heard her in months. She was with her sons. They were having a late Thanksgiving dinner on the weekend. And I'm almost thinking that we ought to just give her another two weeks off. And we're doing fine. And, you know, she needs the resuscitation time. Anyway, she talked beautifully, you know, more like the conceal I've known for previous years. And so when she gets back, I will have her put up the Chang 3 um, post that I wrote several years ago in, what, 2013, I guess, describing the Chinese philosophy, how they're approaching their lunar investigations, what they hope to find, what they did find on Chang 3, which, of course, landed on the moon <clears throat> at 44 North, and 19.5 West, which, of course, when I went to the Chang 3 website back in 2013 and found it filled with tetrahedrons, I knew they knew, we knew they knew, we knew. In other words, that can be an infant regression that goes on forever. The point is the Chinese know exactly what's there. They have an agenda which involves both the ancient civilization and the physics, and even though they come not within 20 light years of this in their public statements, the things they're not saying are very, very important to figuring out what they're up to. Anyway, yesterday, they uh, went into lunar orbit. Today, at the uh, crack of dawn here in the uh, great American Southwest, something like 5 or 6 a.m. my time, they circularized the orbit of the very sophisticated robotic robotic assemblage of spacecraft. There's there's like four spacecraft that are part of this this uh, melange that is was all together. As of late this afternoon, <clears throat> from our Chinese sources, which uh, if you go to that link there, I think you will find the, the new information. Uh, item number two, they separated the two sets of spacecraft, the lander and the ascent stage that they'll stuff about four pounds of lunar material into and then rocket it back into lunar orbit. Just like Apollo, they have a two-component landing system, like the LEM, and they have an ascent stage, like the LEM. They stuff it with four pounds of material, like the astronauts bringing back their lunar samples. They then rocket this thing off from Oceanus Procellarum, a place, a hill, a broad feature about 75 miles across and about 3,000 feet high, which here is a respectable hill. And they're going to sample from that, quote, hill, that volcanic uh, hill. They're telling everybody that's what it is. I think it's more interesting, but we'll we'll get into that later. And then when they launch this ascent capsule back into lunar orbit, again, like Apollo, they're going to rendezvous with another spacecraft like Apollo, s- separate and put the set material material into the uh, other rocket, which then will depart lunar orbit like Apollo for a fall back to Earth of something like 112 hours. Now, we had originally been told that the landing was supposed to take place sometime this afternoon. Sunday afternoon in the U.S., 29 November. It's now been delayed or maybe not. We're not quite sure because the Chinese are being very, 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 very close mouth. 
They do not cover these things live, except, you know, kind of like the old Soviet Union when they're when they've succeeded. So we're kind of guessing, and there's a lot of Weibo stuff and Chinese sources, you know, tweeting and Weiboing. So that's one of those links that I have there in number two. Sometime in the next couple of days, between now and Wednesday, which is December 2nd, I believe, their intention is to land, to pick up the samples, both with a scoop and a drill, stuff about four pounds of material into the ascent stage, and then send it off back to lunar orbit to do its rendezvous, its transfer, and then the trip back home, landing, we believe, somewhere around December 16th. So depending upon whether the Chinese are happy or sad with what they get, we could find out before Christmas what it is that they return to Earth, either directly or there are leaks even in China. So anyway, that's one of our developing stories. To the other story, because this is, as I was telling Stephen last night and Laura, this seems to be the kind of moment of disclosure, the beginning of disclosure of a whole bunch of stuff that we have not been privy to from official sources. It's conceivable that the Chinese are planning to announce that they have found the remnants, the mineralogical or chemical or whatever remnants, uh, material remnants of an ancient culture on the moon. I do not put that at a high probability. That may leak out later, but they certainly landed on a feature which based on our research and a lot to my late friend and colleague, uh, Stephen Troy, if the uh, Mons Rumker, it's a Latin for, you know, mountain of Rumker, named after a famous uh, astronomer a couple of centuries ago. If, if Rumker is in fact an analog of the so-called Marius Hills, named after another famous Middle Ages astronomer named Marius, um, which on Steve's data looked clearly artificial. I mean, you can see the rooms, you can see the cubicles, you can see the, the, you know, buried structures. If in fact, Rumker is the same thing as Marius, then the Chinese either are going to be really surprised or, and I don't think they are, they are going to play this in the long game and there may be some time release aspirin hints. Anyway, watch carefully this unmanned robotic Chinese mission to the moon, Chang 5, because it could be something that is going to change the paradigm. And why do I say that? Well, because the Chinese tonight also have a, an unmanned spacecraft, very elaborate, very complex robot, en route to Mars. Remember, they launched before we launched uh, Perseverance, our new rover, and they're planning to hang around in Mars orbit for several months before they land, uh, one can wonder why they want to do that. Maybe they want to pick uh, the right landing site to show interesting stuff. Why would I say that? Well, if you look at their poster, and we'll go into all this in more detail uh, next weekend on Saturday when the, we assemble the gang and we talk about uh, Moon and Mars and China and U.S. and East-West relations and a new administration and what could be portended by the fact that when they launched their mission to Mars a few months ago, they used as their puff piece, as their background poster uh, for their 
lander, their artistic rendered lander on the surface, they used a borrowed Curiosity rover shot from NASA. And lo and behold, it wasn't just any old image of Mars. It was an image of Mars showing stunning ruins in the background, crystal clear, undoubtedly crystal clear, which, of course, we'll all show again and talk about uh, next Saturday night. The other story, the other breaking story, of course, has to do with the connecting blue in this disclosure model that we're now in the season of people finally telling us the truth about what's out there and also what's down here. Because you've all heard the story now of the Utah monolith. And if you go to items number three and four and five and six and seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, oh, there's a thirteen. Look at all those in your copious spare time, either during the show or um, afterwards, and you'll see the progression of this story, um, including the fact that uh, after the uh, Utah Department of Public Service or Public Safety um, sent uh, four guys over this site in Utah to do a kind of a count of uh, uh, bighorn sheep. And one of the biologists aboard looked down and saw a sun glint and said, wait a minute, go back. There's something down there. This story has unfolded of this 12 foot high equilateral triangle shaped monolith sitting on the floor of a small box canyon on the very flat level, you know, alluvial floor, um, and stunningly reminiscent in many, many minds of the monolith in Arthur Clark and Stanley Kubrick's fame 2001. Except that monolith was a slab. This monolith was an equilateral triangle, which, of course, as I've said many times, is a tetrahedron in two dimensions so whoever was behind this and i went through a whole bunch of numbers last night it's located at 19.5 times two give or take what are the odds of that it was located in the canyon notice i say was i'm going to get to that in a moment in exactly the right position so it could be angled with one point of the equilateral triangle facing a cleft in the cliff of the canyon directly and the angle if you look down on item number what is it what is it item number five this is a google earth shot looking down from orbit you can see the monolith and the shadow there from sometime around october of 2016 is when this thing appeared and it's been there over five years um it was angled precisely off due north to face that canyon at 19.5 degrees so that's is where things get really, really, really intriguing because if you look at number six, that's a, a screen grab from the video shot by the state of Utah P, uh, DPS crew, Department of Public uh, Safety. That's one of the biologists wearing a green jumper. Uh, and you can see the top of the obelisk there, which of course shows that it's an equilateral triangle and it's pointed toward that cleft in the cliff. So then you go down to number seven. This is a new story that uh, Steve broke last night on the other side of midnight, because apparently sometime in the deep night of the of Friday night, grading into Saturday morning, somebody came in and took the monolith away. But wait, 
wait, there's more, as they say in those old commercials. Because if you click on number eight, this is a super image that uh, Laura found. It's got all kinds of amazing clues in the background on the cliff face. And there are four tourists, four guys standing there next to the only thing that whoever robbed the obelisk from the canyon left. The top, the equilateral triangle of thin stainless steel of which the original was composed. And if you look really close up on some of the videos that are all over Instagram and YouTube and whatever, you'll see there are little uh, screw holes in the top. So this thing could be, you know, bolted on to the uh, top of the other three vertical sides, making a 12 foot tall obelisk. Now, what's really interesting is if you look to the right of those four guys, just four average guys, one of them nicely holding a mask on the left, you'll see a, what's called a cairn. Uh, a cairn is a pile of rocks that explorers for thousands of years have piled up in strange places to kind of mark something important. If you look at some of the old uh, Antarctic expeditions or Arctic expeditions, uh, primarily in the Antarctic because there are rocks there. In the north, of course, there's nothing but ice. You'll find that they mark important places with cairns. Or if you look at the uh, first Egyptian explorers, mark important places with cairns. Well, this cairn, if you look at it and click on it and blow it up, make it big, and then you can actually click on it again and make it really big, um, right next to the uh, uh, equilateral triangle steel plate, which they've tipped up so you can see it in three dimensions, which of course makes it look like a tetrahedron, there's this cairn of piled up rocks. And I counted them, one, six, seven. Oh my gosh, seven rocks, seven tetrahedral spins of a tetrahedron, anyone? In other words, I'm firmly of the opinion that whoever put this thing there after it was found and all the tourists descended on it, and there's some pretty wild photographs. There are people dancing around it. There are people cooking around it. I mean, you know, tourists are tourists, right? I think whoever put it there came back in the middle of the night on Friday night, the 27th, and took it away and knew how to take it away so that there's nothing left in the ground but three slices made with a concrete saw when which they had poured epoxy and they had literally planted this very precisely made obelisk out of stainless steel, hollow inside so it was relatively light, and they planted it and anchored it with epoxy to the bedrock underneath the alluvial dirt or whatever. And then they came back when they saw all the tourist nonsense and they took it away. Now, why do I think it was stolen back by them and not by somebody else? The answer is the leftover remaining equilateral triangle. If you're just a thief and you want a really cool souvenir for your living room, I used to know someone who lived at MIT many, many years ago who had literally bought um, the casing of an old Titan II ballistic missile and had it in their living room. So every time you entered their apartment, there was this huge missile extending up from the floor through the ceiling. People collect the damnedest things. So whoever wanted to in the model that someone just randomly wanted to collect this thing, the question then would be, well, if you want to collect something that's, quote, really weird and amazing and has been now written up all over the world, 
why wouldn't you take the whole thing? Why would you leave the most important part, the tetrahedral clue that there's deep mathematics to this site? There is coded information as to why this little canyon and not some other canyon in Utah or Idaho or New Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. And why would you, before you left, build up a cairn of seven rocks? Because you're trying to send a higher level tetrahedral message. So I think the guys that took it away were the same guys that put it there in the first place. Now, the canyon itself is amazing. And Laura found some of these really astonishing images. So you're going to want to, in your copious spare time, go through those. And uh, we'll go back to the other side of midnight to the guest page. Just keep scrolling down. I mean, look at number nine. This idiot sitting on top. I mean, people are really dumb. Tourists are dumb, dumb, dumb. Number 10 is really intriguing. And I'm not going to tell you where it is because I want you to really examine the walls of this canyon. Okay. But oh, I'll, I'll give you a hint. I found literally this afternoon, based on this image that Laura unearthed, which is a wide angle panorama taken from a very important A elevation and B angle up on one of the walls of this little canyon. And there you can see tourists and you can see the rock that Keith thinks has some interesting inscriptions on it. And I do too. You can see the backdrop and there's all kinds of amazing things to look at and study and kind of grok a term that some of you will know and many of you will not. And there's the tetrahedron. Well, somewhere on the right-hand side, I'm not going to tell you where, of that wall behind the tetrahedron, behind the three-dimensional obelisk lifting up the 2D equilateral triangle into 3D, which mathematically makes it a stand-in for a tetrahedron, there is a double-inscribed tetrahedron carved into the walls of the canyon, exactly as Robin found at Coral Castle when we first visited there when I had the heart attack 20-some years ago, and she looked across as we entered the, uh, the entrance, and she said, oh, my God, look at that. And she pointed, and all across the Coral Castle you know, complex on the far wall cut into the rock was exactly the same double tetrahedron symbol, meaning, of course, the physics, the torsion field, the morticular nature of the matrix in which our reality is embedded. Whoever did this, in terms of the obelisk, they knew that this had been memorialized, this physics, in the very walls of this canyon. And how many hundreds or maybe thousands of people now have been in here? And have you heard anybody have you seen anybody writing anything anywhere all across the internet as to what's on the walls of the canyon? No, they're all focused on the obelisk. So for whatever reason, I think I've made a plausible case that the owner of the obelisk or owners came back, removed it, leaving the one clue, the top plate, the equilateral triangle, to reinforce the message, think the physics, think the physics. Think about tetrahedrons and think about our hidden, ancient, ancient history. And you can go through the rest of the images and have fun and look at all that. Um, what do we got? We're about 25 minutes after the hour. 
So let me introduce my guest of the evening because we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about, including this. Um, Rick Levine is our guest, a professional astrologer since 1976. Rick has become a respected leader in the global astrology community. He is the past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StarIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years, delivered by the Internet to millions of readers per day throughout tarot.com. His expanded daily Planet Pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer. He is the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. His internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month. And in 2018, he was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamani Institute of Astrology in Kolata, India. And without further ado, welcome back to the other side of Midnight, Rick. Which side of midnight are we on? Thanks for having me. Nice to be back. Depends on which side of the planet you're on. Okay, before we get into the meat of this, uh, Laura London is also going to join us. Now, the reason I asked Laura is because we're going to be talking about consciousness and trends and what's gone on with our society and what could go on. Laura London studied experimental psychology at the University of Washington and earned her undergraduate degree in neuropsychology from a private Jesuit institute. After working for many years in neurology, neuroimaging, and nuclear medicine at the University Hospitals of Cleveland, and it's to be a psychiatric hospital, she left that scene and entered into a 17-year Jungian analysis, sending her deeply into the work of Carl Gustav Jung. She attended a wide variety of lectures, workshops, and seminars with notable Jungian analysts and authors and worked closely with the Jung Association of Central Ohio and C.G. Jung Center in Chicago. In 2015, she created the podcast Speaking of Jung, Interviews with Jungian analysts, which led her to Zurich, Switzerland, to visit the places where Jung lived and worked. And for the past five years, she's interviewed over 50 certified Jungian analysts in an effort to bring the theories and application of Jungian analysis to a wider segment of the general public. Welcome back, Laura. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me tonight. Okay. Um, okay. We've got about what five minutes. Let me look here. No less. We've got three minutes till the bottom of the hour. Um, let's have some brief comments about you know the, the breaking news stories, and then we'll pick things up on the other side of the break. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Don't, every, don't everyone rush for the mic. I <laughs> I'm rushing. I'm yes. running over to it, Richard. This is reminding me of I sent you an email in early October. Because I had booked the editor of Jung's Black Books for oh, my podcast. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I never in my wildest dreams thought that he would agree to do an interview. He also edited and co-translated Jung's Red Book, the famous The Red Book. So they released Jung's Black Books this year on October 13th. And when we were exchanging emails, I'll make this brief. He said to me that he imagined the box because it's a seven volume set of Jung's black books, seven volumes. 
he imagined the box that holds the set as resembling something something, excuse me, resembling the monolith in Kubrick's 2001. (laughs) It is a tall, kind of narrow, it's very tall, black box. It's a slipcase, so it's open on one side that holds the seven volumes. And I was, as you would say, stunned that a professor of of, um, German languages and at, he's at University College London, that he would reference the monolith in Kubrick's 2001. So, you know, it had been a long time since I saw that movie. So, would of course, I wrote be, to you. Would, would this be termed a Jungian synchronicity? I think so, because <laughs> ever since then, I have been seeing the monolith, things shaped like the monolith and references to the monolith everywhere. And then when this news hit, I I, I first thought it was a a joke I, I, or fake news. <laughs> I, I didn't believe it. So Okay, but the whole hold there. Let's, let's continue this after the break. I have been wanting to play this song in the break for months. One of my favorite television shows, which is now so appropriate given where the tetrahedral monolith was built. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Wild Wild West. Thank you. 
And that, as they said, is all they wrote. Okay, guys, uh, we're going to skip the bottom of the hour break because I, I really want to get back to this conversation. Rick, is it your idea that something is kind of hanging in the ether, waiting to be born, kind of uh, full-blown, that we're about to be inundated with something really, really, really cool that's going to change everything and make 2020 remembrance perhaps uh, not the uh, Annus Horribilis that Queen Elizabeth called 1992, but maybe something much, much more important, interesting? I've been saying for years that 2020 would be a major and memorable year for for uh, civilization for a long time. I have not stepped that claim back based upon what's already happened this year. And I think that the last month of the year, as we move from November into December, uh, I think we have another level of something to occur. Uh, what that may be, uh, there I will step back and let reality define itself as it does so well. However, yes, the answer to your question is yes. Mm-hmm. What was your question? The answer is yes. <laughs> Laura, back to you. The, the idea of synchron for people that do not follow Jung, <clears throat> and there's a lot of people, define what I'm kind of excited about in terms of synchronicities. What what was Jung's definition? And what are, what were his criteria besides the idea that it was really a bizarre coincidence? Well, it's a meaningful coincidence is what, what, how, how he describes synchronicity, a meaningful con- coincidence. And it is when the, it, an inner event and an outer event occur simultaneously, not at, at exactly the same time, but so it's, it's a, it has those two components the inner and the outer. And it's so it's very different from simultaneity or what we would commonly refer to as a coincidence. Hmm. So how do, I mean, meaning is different for everybody. Right. So what's meaningful for you, I might say, and of course all the critics always say, ah, it's just a coincidence. I mean, I'm looking at all this compounded mathematics and then the surrounding surreal landscape of this little Utah Canyon. And there's no way I can be convinced this is all just coincidence. Well, I mean, it, it, it's not, but it, it, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that this monolith out in the desert isn't of interest to everyone. Uh, it is of enormous interest to you because of the the things that you're interested in and you are seeing the geometry and we haven't talked about the faces that we're seeing in the rock walls are we going to get to that yeah right well, well, we're not, we have plenty of, we have three hours we can play yeah our heart's content we're not right. constrained so i thought it was really interesting when you mentioned that no one in the media was referring to the actual canyon or the the rock formation. Well, wait, wait. it's not just the media. When when you say media, I'm thinking of like you know networks or New York Times or whatever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> or even the the guys from the state of Utah who landed to look at it. I'm talking about all these ordinary folks that took the time and effort and trouble to a figure out where this thing was. Yeah. Because of course the state didn't want people crawling all over it, and they did the damnedest, dumbest thing they could have imagined. They made it into a mystery. 
they made it into a challenge. So, of course, people on Reddit had to find it. Uh, but then when everybody goes and finds it, nobody, and I mean nobody, has put a post out there on Instagram or you know their their you know Facebook page or whatever talking about the critical dimensionality of the figures, the fact that these shapes, these faces, these representations are not like Native Americans, you know, 2D painted or, you know, inscribed into the rock pictographs or, or um, uh, petroglyphs, but something of massive scale requiring, according to one of the artists, people in our team, Arthur, uh, Andrew, Andrew Curry, a really sophisticated technology, something that I don't think we we currently have. Well, maybe we don't have it in public. It may be part of the secret space program, but it's it's a physics that literally has to be able to reshape matter at an elemental, molecular, or crystalline level. This isn't just a lot of rock rubbing with you know dirt and grit and sand. So the fact that people are there and they're taking photographs and they're cavorting around. And they're balancing like that one idiot on top of the uh, obelisk. And nobody's looking at the context. I'm just blown away how unobservant people in the 21st century have become. Well, it doesn't surprise me. It does me. <laughs> in the least. In the least. So, you know, going back to synchronicity, it, it's about the convergence of the inner and the outer. And... And, and something that I neglected to mention is that it's a causal. One doesn't cause the other. So well, that's wait, another. You, you mean the, the 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 foundation of a synchronicity? Yes. Yes. You know correct. the first. This, this is Rick. Let me jump in here. For no, no, second. that's exactly what I want you to do. I love having yes. conversations on this show. I don't so, like interviews. So. Um, one of the first places Jung wrote about synchronicity was in what was called the psychological preface to the Wilhelm Bain's translation of the I Ching. And in it, he talked oh, about grief. how... We're all supposed to know that, right? Well, yeah, sure. Um, and, and so um, in it, he talked about how Western civilization's understanding of time was based upon um, Archimedean uh, causal, you know, uh, uh, cause and effect. That, that we looked at time as linear, and yet there were cultures that actually had other understandings of time. And the I Ching, which came out of the Chinese culture, understood time differently and understood that each moment had a, uh, what's the right word, um, had, had a sense, a, 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 a feeling, a, a connection to everything that happened in a moment. This incidentally um, is part of one um, one route that one might take to explain or at least to elucidate astrology that everyone is born in a moment and therefore contains properties of that moment. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I want to stay with synchronicity because what Jung said was that in the Chinese way of looking at things that because every moment had a quality, that was the word I was looking for before or earlier, that um, that when things happen in a moment, that every moment is in time is coming from another moment in time and then going toward a different moment in time. And the I Ching or the Book of Changes actually had a way of looking at that. And so in order to test this idea, 
Jung in this, this forward to the I Ching said, I'm going to ask the I Ching a question. And he then basically analyzed what the I Ching's answer was and used it to describe how the human mind creates what Laura so rightfully called the connection, the psychic connection between the inner and the outer, um, because things that co- happen at the same moment in time, as we say, are coincidental. And although synchronicity is coincidental, in the West, we use the word coincidence or coincidental as a way of minimizing importance. And in other cultures, things that are coincidental, just because they happened in the same moment, they are immediately elevated into an importance because they are of the same, of the same quality. And so it's something that we miss is a little bit of a nuance in the dismissiveness of the word coincidental uh, because it lacks the ability um, to, to create meaning out of things. And that's we in the West, we often look at things and we don't understand that there is a deeper, a hermetic, a hidden meaning behind what it is that's obvious on the surface. Well, there is this really resistant, stubborn, almost epoxy-like matrix in which we've been embedded since, what, the 17th century, maybe 16th, the so-called Newtonian clockwork universe, where everything... The Age of Enlightenment, which I have a, a couple of contemporaries that call it the Age of Endarkenment. Well, really, Descartes. because because it, it basically sold a model that the universe is a clock. It's impersonal. It's unconscious. It's mechanistic. It just keeps ticking. It doesn't care what we think, what we feel, whatever. And in that universe, the idea that two separate things can be related at some level resonantly is anathema to the very foundation of Western science now. Absolutely. And incidentally, I would just like to very briefly introduce another word that many people who use the um, idea and concept of synchronicity don't know because Jung didn't work with it, but it's a real word, a real concept, and that's diachronicity. And diachronicity is things that have meaningful connection, but not in the same moment in time. And uh, And so synchronicity is really only half of the story of how meaningful uh, um, connections can be made that are on the surface a causal, and it was Jung who defined synchronicity as the quote a causal connecting principle end quote. Hmm, Laura. Right, and you asked for the criteria. Sorry, this mic is new, and is that okay? Sounds fine. Yeah. Okay, so. The two factors are an unconscious image. If if we're getting technical here, an unconscious image comes into consciousness either directly or indirectly. In, in indirectly could be in the form of a dream or an idea, a thought, an internal state. And then the second factor is an objective situation coincides with that. Do you guys remember remember a guest I had on? I've had on several times, Dean Radin with the Noetics Institute. Oh, yeah, sure. I know know Dean Radin. And Dean Radin talked a great deal on the show some years ago about 9-11 and the eggs at Princeton and looking for randomness or less randomness in the number generators, these so-called eggs. And then they correlated this from all over the planet 
through the internet and they looked at correlations between events, major events that will change consciousness and whether these little randomized mathematical uh, generating eggs would go into a partial resonance. In other words, they're, 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 <clears throat> they're spitting out of numbers would become less random and more organized when there was some kind of cohering event. And the biggest takeaway from that research was four hours before 9-11, the eggs went nuts. And you can really see the spike, indicating at some level that we don't understand that somehow propagating backward through time, the events, the shock, the consciousness, the emotions, all that we think of around 9-11 was propagating back through our 3D time frame to where it was disturbing the randomness of the eggs. Okay, let me fast forward the film now, Laura, and talk about your, your Jungian friend. Wait, wait, is it, wait, one second, Richard. The work that, that Dean Radin was referencing was a work by the guy, a guy named um, uh, Robert John, and he wrote a book called Margins of Reality. He ran the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Center, and that's where this work came from. Yeah, and wasn't there a guy named Roger also associated with it? Perhaps a, a physicist. Anyway, I yeah, do. yeah. I, 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 I didn't mean that Raiden was part of the. <clears throat> he was an extended no, part. I know of the, that, but yeah. I just wanted to give people the reference if they wanted to. That margins of reality is the book that really talks about this whole uh, distemporal, this this uh, connection of of uh, of meaning that's uh, through time that co- seems to have some sort of retro causational uh, impact. Okay, Laura, if you can make a note to send to Kinthea when we get her back from whatever dimension she's having fun in, and we'll put that in Rick's section so people can go and click on the link and all that. Yep. Thank you. Okay, back to Laura. Um, Your friend suddenly out of nowhere comparing this epic work to the black monolith in 2001 I'm wondering if we're seeing the same effect echoing back through time from this whole obelisk event and the world going nuts over 2001 and the monolith and all that. And somehow he was picking up on that metaphor, that comparison. And that's why he suddenly out of the blue in a way that you had no way of knowing he was going to do it, made the comparison. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was interesting about him is he started so this is the black books. He started looking through the black books so, because they were written in German and they needed to be translated into English and then they needed to be edited into these volumes. He began that work in 2001. And whoa, 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 whoa. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Right. And then there was another reference to 2010, which I actually wa- – so I watched both movies back-to-back. And, Richard, you don't reference the 2010 movie that much. Because it's not as mystical or as deep as 2001. Yeah. I mean I, I actually worked with Peter Hyams on 2010. I knitted him together with, with uh, Arthur. Peter Hyams, who's a movie director, many well-known films, was in Los Angeles and Hollywood. <clears throat> Arthur was in Sri Lanka. And so in the old days, the way you would work together is you'd either phone people up, which used to be very expensive, or you would ship by U.S. mail manuscripts back and forth. <clears throat> and the writer and the director would kind of you know, collaborate that way. My contribution was I gave them the first computer interlink 
where they each could type on a computer and via the primitive, primitive internet. And, and, a, and a friend of mine named Ren Breck in uh, Northern California, I was able to connect Arthur and Peter together to write the script of 2010 in a way they would never have collaborated in a pre-internet era. So uh, that's probably one of the reasons why I don't mention it because, uh, well, I like 2001 so much better than 2010. 2010 was too kind of pat. It was, there were no mysteries left. There was no like allure of your own imagination, your own projection. Whereas Stanley was past master. And that's the difference between two directors. Kubrick was a genius. Peter Hyams was a very, very good director. Light years of difference. Got it. So he started working on uh, translating these books in 2001. And then, and that was for the red book um, because Jung wrote the red book based on, he pulled stuff from the black books and put them in this, in calligraphy in the big leather bound red book. And then once the red book was published in 2009, they began work on the black books in 2010. So those are the two years that, that are very significant to the eventualcation of the black books in 2020, this unusual year. So yeah, uh, seeing the obelisk. And then, so Richard, when I had reached out to you about that, you sent me a graphic from the Enterprise mission of the planet Jupiter. Oh, yes, yes. So this was part of, I forget what anniversary it was of 2001. Okay. Well, we'd have to put it up and I forgot to put it up tonight. But the the shorthand version, and again, put this on the note, excuse me, to Kathea. Okay, sure. Um, I, I created this composite graphic going through the mathematical properties of the monolith in 2001 for an anniversary showing at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles or in Hollywood that I was taken to many, many years ago by uh, Paul Davids. And I wanted to do something on Enterprise that would kind of encapsulate why 2001 was not just your average film, and the, the, the really amazing thing was in their original conceptual, you know, working together, uh, Arthur and Stanley wanted to create this, this teaching machine, this alien ET teaching machine that would appear throughout the film and would somehow punctuate human evolution and consciousness and, and development. And Arthur proposed a tetrahedron. And there is a stunning piece of artwork, which I've got, which I will also send to uh, Kintia, make a note of that, uh, which basically shows one of these pre-film, pre-production conceptual art pieces, which has the Discovery spacecraft, which was in 2001, hanging in Jovian orbit right beside this gargantuan, huge monolith with a doorway in its side. And the scale of everything is so amazing, you know, appropriate to Jupiter. And the point of the tetrahedron in orbit, somehow McCall got right, because it's pointing directly at the great red spot on Jupiter, which, of course, is at 19.5 degrees south latitude. Well, that sounds just like the Utah monolith. Doesn't it? Yes, (laughs) yes, messaging. So then the question is, well, apparently... 
in, in, in a book that was written, published by Dell, called The Making of 2001, um, Arthur actually you know, recorded his conversation with Stanley about using a tetrahedron as the monolith. And Kubrick said, oh, no, 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 no. Pyramids are much too cliche. And in that sense, as an artist, he was correct. So what Arthur did was proverbially go back to the drawing boards and recreated the monolith, which has the mathematical dimensions of a circumscribing tetrahedron, which is when instead of the tetrahedron being inside a planet, showing you where the energy is coming up, it's a tetrahedron around the planet with the planet inside the tetrahedron. And that's the mathematics of the monolith. So the monolith is tetrahedral in a coded form, exactly like the guy's stainless steel creation in the Utah Canyon. Weirder and weirder and weirder. That's why I'm really intrigued with this damn story. Because again, going back to the Jungian idea, is it possible, boys and girls, Rick and Laura, that the shockwaves of what's coming, Rick, and we'll get to that after the the top of the hour, are promulgating back through 3D time. So these hints of this stunning paradigm shift is aware and apprehendable by people who are sensitive enough or smart enough or plugged in enough to tell what's coming. And don't everybody speak at once. I'm going to pass that to Rick. Well, the answer, the answer is of course, uh, yes. And oh, there's um, never, there's and, never, of course, everybody says that. Okay. The, in my, in my humble opinion, the answer is yes. And I have a story and some, some facts to back up that will take longer. We should save this till the beginning of the next segment. Um, but well, retro causality, how the present impacts the past and how the future impacts impacts the present is not just some crazy idea. It's something that is a uh, real thing in modern physics. Well, let's start the story now. We'll break for the commercial, which will give people time to think about what you're going to say between now and the top of the hour. And then we'll give them the climax on the other side. Got it. How long do we have? Uh, five minutes. Oh, oh, well, very, very simply, there's this um, man named Jack Sarfati. I don't know. Oh, if you know I know Jack. Jack. He's a brilliant, okay. far out, bizarre, crazy, out of the box, Trump maddened uh, physicist in northern well, okay. in northern California. So, so uh, Jack was kind of I want to say laughed out of the uh, physics community in the United States um, for some mathematical work. And as you know, he is like a mathematician uh, par excellence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is yep. brilliant. And topology is one of his, you know, um, well, the question that he asked as a as, as a Ph.D. theoretical physicist is, um, is, is it possible for things in the uh, present to or in the in the future to impact things in the present? And um, and he used one of like an Einsteinian um, quantum physics thought experiment. And here's the thought experiment. You're sitting at home one day, the telephone rings, you pick up the telephone, and the person on the other end of the phone identifies um, himself as you, but 30 years in the future. Oh, my gosh. Does this break any laws of physics? You mean the the, the, uh, the so-called grandpa 
uh, paradox where if you go back and kill your grandpa, well, it's, it's where kind you're of ever a born. piece of that. It's not that per- exactly. Uh, the que- the question really is, you know, does 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 something from the future interfering in the present moment can it happen? And his answer, mathematically, um, unquestionably, yes. Oh. And he and and again, it was the, it was the beginning of him kind of as you said, he's very far out. I mean. Uh, and he ended up leaving the United States. He ended up going to teach for a number of years at Beerbeck. And you know who, what physicist was at Beerbeck in England, Beerbeck College? That's where David Boehm was. Oh. Uh, and, okay. and so what happened is, you know, fast forward, I don't remember the number of years, 25, 30 years. And, um, and Jack Sarfati is back in the United States. And there is now, based upon this work that I mentioned from Robert John, uh, that's J-A-H-N, and the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Center um, at Princeton University, um, that there is this idea that they that that they found experimentally provable again and again and again that things in the um, future can impact events in the past, and things in the uh, I'm sorry, things in the future can impact things in the present. And things in the present can act, actually uh, change or impact things in the past. And, um, and there's a whole branch of physics now that's not experimental or theoretical. It's not a theoretical. It's experimental. And it's called retrocausality, the physics of how quantum tunneling and, <laughs> and, and things actually going um, into other, into another, you know, whether it's a tachyon, hyperdimensional, whatever can actually impact events. Um, and there's more to the story, but the answer to your question is yes, of hmm. course it can. And I say, of course. <laughs> See, I always thought quantum theory was based on the idea that every decision, the whole idea of observers basically create reality that particles are not doing anything unless you an observer observes them interacting and then they interact on 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 that basis every event breaks with reality and you get bifurcating multi branches of of blossoming universes each new universe i mean this sounds crazy is because of a decision made i say decision an event that takes this turn or that turn so i'm not quite sure in quantum theory how you could have retro causality in one dimension. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a, I'm not a physicist and B I'm not limiting anything to one dimension. Hmm. Okay. Tell you what, hold it there. My guests this morning are Rick uh, Levine, one of the world's most interesting astrologers, hyperdimensional astrologers. I've always wanted to see that as a term that was formalized. And also um, uh, Laura London, who is a Jungian specialist, and our fields are all colliding tonight with what's going on on planet Earth as maybe a portent of what is going to go on on planet Earth. I mean, a lot of interesting stuff. And if you think currently it's interesting, wait till you see what's going to happen next. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
after 30 days. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, November 29th, 2020, a year that will definitely go down in uh, some kind of infamy, or maybe what's coming up ahead is going to completely transform how we think about this year. Is it possible? Is there some kind of tremor in the force? So let's let's get into this, um, guys. Starting with Rick, um, we have a couple of very major, major, major celestial events coming up. One of them I um, uh, was talking about uh, a little while ago, and that is this uh, conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which is going to occur at its closest uh, the evening of the 21st of December of this year, right at the Winter solstice, and of course the winter correct. And the winter solstice is very important uh, because uh, that's our annual alignment with the Earth's axis, the center of the galaxy, the star around which we orbit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there's another celestial event that we know because we measured this stuff has actual physical properties that affect life on Earth, and that is an eclipse, an eclipse of the sun. Uh, we and. Richard, we actually have an eclipse in uh, in three and a half hours. Really? In, yeah, the, the the full moon is at one twenty nine a.m. That's Pacific time, so that's four twenty nine a.m. That would be Monday morning, uh, Eastern time, and it is a, um, a lunar eclipse. Um, at eight degrees of Gemini, full moon at eight degrees of Gemini, and we are literally two and a half hours, uh, sorry, three and a half hours away from it, right in this moment. Oh my gosh. I missed that one. <laughs> okay, well, so where do you, you want it. to begin? Because as, as I've said for many years, our model of how this physics works is that physical three-dimensional mass in 3D, as it spins, 
and precesses, which is another rotation, it sends out waves, torsion field waves that interact with other spinning, processing systems. And we as consciousness on Earth are bathed in this um, embodiment of ricocheting waves and interference patterns. Think of water on a stream when you throw pebbles in and all those little ripples. And it's this combined ripple effect that is modulating our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, and we kind of float like leaves on this wavical interaction. And when really big celestial things happen, like alignments or conjunctions of the two largest mass planets in the solar system, something has to give. And something like this has not happened to where people are going to be able to see it for at least 800 years. Did I get any of that wrong? Almost. The Jupiter-Saturn conjunction cycle actually is a 20-year cycle. Um, and it's still, I mean, the ancients called it the Grand Conjunction. It was, it was the, uh, you know, granddaddy of all astrological cycles. Um, the 800-year piece in this comes into the, oh, how to explain this very simply. The fact that Jupiter and Saturn align um, uh, they, they align at a certain distance from each other uh, on a very regular basis. Right. And it's actually a near triangle, which makes it be so that it takes about 800 years for the Jupiter-Saturn alignment to occur in the same place in the sky relative to Earth. And in that period of time, it, it occurs every 20 years triangularly to where it was before, and in astrology, the geometry, again, this is certainly, uh, you know, uh, a two-dimensional tetrahedron, and that is the <laughs> equilateral triangle is the, what the astrologers would call the trine. Mm. And so for 200 years, the pattern occurs in one element, fire, earth, air, water, and then it shifts elements where it occurs in that element for 200 years and so on. And this particular Jupiter-Saturn conjunction on um, the solstice on December 21st of 2020 is actually not only a grand conjunction, but it's also a grand conjunction mutation, meaning that it's changing the elemental basis, which does propel it into another level of importance. But I want to correct one thing you said, and that is astrologically, um, it's not the heavy weight, the mass of Jupiter and Saturn that make the, the, the um, alignments most significant. And again, from a standpoint of torsional physics, Richard, you will get this right away. It's actually the frequency of the cycle and the lower frequency cycles when they interact have more subtle, but more lasting and more powerful impact. And this year, 2020, we've had a series of events that have each been unusual or statistically, what's the right word, um, improbable, statistically unusual, that, have, that will culminate in these, this Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in air after 200 years of Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions in the Earth element. But the year began um, with, a, with a conjunction that in many ways is much heavier, and we're still all through this year, even now, feeling the weight of this conjunction that occurred on January 12th between Saturn and Pluto. And in fact, I wrote about January 12th, 2020, 
in October of 2001, a month after the World Trade Tower bombing, because that was a Saturn-Pluto conjunction. I'm sorry, that was a Saturn-Pluto opposition, and this is a Saturn-Pluto conjunction. And let it just be understood that on January 12th, the exact day of the conjunction was the day of the first recorded announced mortality from COVID-19. And it was also the day that the Chinese government announced um, the uh, genome, um, which is kind of a story on its own that we're not going into right now. But that set the tone for the year. And then into that, we had Jupiter also make three alignments with Pluto after Saturn made an alignment with Pluto on January 12th. And now the final and culminating event of the year is this Saturn-Pluto conjunction that's a grand mutation on the tail end of two eclipses, the first in three and a half hours and the next in <laughs> mid-December on, on, on December 15th. Okay, in terms of these conjunctions, yes, it's a 20-year cycle between Jupiter and Saturn. But not all conjunctions are created equal. There are two di additional factors we have to think about. One is the separation. I mean, this one is so damn close that if you don't have a telescope or binoculars, the two planets will fuse into one really, really, really bright star and then drift apart. Their closest approach is one-fifth the width of the full moon, a tenth of a degree, which is really... You know, that's getting down there for people with good eyesight. The other is where around the ecliptic the conjunction occurs, because not all conjunctions are equal because of what's in the background and what's at other angles to the conjunction, like what's the angle between this conjunction on the 21st and the sun galactic center alignment? Correct. Um, I'm sorry, I asked that question. Was that a question? I, I was... I was a yeah, kind of. In other words, do you know offhand what they angle between the Sun-Galactic Center-Earth alignment is and the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, which has got to be off to the side so we can see it? Well, um, yeah. Um, uh, first of all, um, uh, hang, just hang on one second here, and I got the chart right in front of me right now. Super. Um, and, and, and the thing that you're referring to is actually – uh, first of all, is the declination because when when two planets are in the same um, uh, declination, they are on the ecliptic on the same plane of the Earth going around the sun, which of course is why eclipses are important because that's a new moon or full moon when the sun and the moon, um, I'm sorry, when the Earth and the moon are on the same plane as the Earth going around the sun. And this particular conjunction, Jupiter and Saturn are in um, in close declination. I'll come up with that number for you in just a moment. But um, but the other thing is that its relationship um, to the Sun and or to the galactic center. I mean, in fact, the galactic center uh, being at 27, 28 degrees of Sagittarius is actually on the winter solstice. And so the solstice points, as you said before, are certainly important, but they're also the basis of the quadrilateral underpinning of the physics of being on Earth. The, you know, the four, you know, the four points, the cardinal points, the spring um, equinox, the summer solstice, the autumn equinox, and the winter solstice 
So the fact that this is occurring at the same moment as the sun is moving just across the galactic center and lining up with that zero degree point um, from a cardinal point of view and also Mercury, it is a very powerful, it's a very powerful alignment, but that's not what makes it special. What makes it special, at least in my perception, oh, well, hang on, 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 hang on. See, in my physics, that's what drives everything. The spin, the angular momentum, the angles, the resonance angles. You're saying there's yes. another unknown factor. What is that unknown factor that I don't well, know I'm about? The other, the, other, the other factor, which is not in relationship to other planets, it's in relationship to this large 800-year cycle, which you correctly you know, um, uh, um, made mention of right at the beginning. And so this is really a 200-year change within this larger cycle that just adds another layer of importance to it. That's, that's all. Okay. Do you happen to know offhand what that angular separation of the conjunction is with the uh, Earth's galactic center alignment? Um, it's about 30 degrees. Which Maybe is, 30 which degrees. Is, which is very, very important in the physics. Very important. 30 degrees is not trivial. Okay, so... What's going to what, what's going to happen this year of all years, 2020, with this conjunction, this unique conjunction, at that angle, in a few weeks? I, yeah, I, I I I am not one to uh, to to use astrology to limit people's perceptions by saying this is what I think is going to happen. What I know is going to happen is that when we look back at this year. January in particular, and then December around the solstice, which of course is, um, you know, I think the Electoral College meets on the day of the next eclipse, of the solar eclipse. Um, um, December, December 14th, I believe. Yep, yep. And that's the date of the, that's the date of, um, of the, um, of, of the uh, Sagittarius uh, um, um, solar eclipse. So you've got to be kidding. Uh, and then we have a guy sitting in the White House who refuses to leave. I mean, what what more can happen? <laughs> well, what more can happen is we don't know, and that's the whole magic of all of this. There's another piece that's also cooking this month that I just want to mention, and that has to do with another. You you use the word um, things that are hidden that are not quite you know that are not on the surface. I don't remember the word exact words that you used, Richard. Yeah, but. In, in in the astrology that I do, which is slightly, um, what's the right word, more futuristic than the traditional astrology, which was strictly based upon a division by 12, mm-hmm. that we, with, with math, modern mathematics, we have the ability to do a much more in-depth understanding of resonance and harmonic frequencies. And all through this month, um, through November and on into December, we have a preponderance of planets that are moving in and out of angles based upon one seventh, two sevenths, three sevenths of a circle. <laughs> and that seven pointed star, as you probably know, is incredibly complicated because it's irrational numbers that doesn't fit into anything. It's, it's in a way it's supernatural. And so I think that this is another piece that's just sitting out there um, through this whole period of time that, and by the way, that seven-pointed geometry was all over the first bombing of the World Trade Tower. 
that was just it was one of the most seven pointed you know uh, geometrical moments that I've seen in any chart I've looked at ever. Hmm. Laura, you had something you wanted to add here. Well, I wanted to mention uh, how the current Jupiter Saturn in the sky, and I, I know I've told you guys that I go out every evening for a walk and then I just, I go to the park and I lie down on the ground to do some earthing and I can face the south and see the current Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, and Pluto's in there too, but it's not visible to the naked eye. And then I look off to my left and I can see Mars because there's been this square, because Mars is currently in Aries, squaring the Jupiter-Saturn-Pluto in Capricorn. And so seeing that, I'm so used to seeing astrological charts on my computer screen and to actually be outside at night and see it in the sky is kind of weird um, because I'm so used to seeing it on the screen. But what happens on the solstice on December 21st, and then we're going to have a tie-in with that coming up soon on this show, um, is that those two planets are moving out of Capricorn and into Aquarius. And I know that this Jupiter-Saturn conjunction happens once every 20 years, but it made me think of this age of Aquarius, which I wanted to know, Rick, your what do you know of the first mention of that term? Because I interviewed a Jungian analyst in Milwaukee. His name is Dennis Merritt. He's also a clinical psychologist. And he pointed out that it was Jung who first coined that term. It was in a letter. It's in uh, C.G. Jung Letters, Volume 1. And I have it here, and I was going to read the paragraph, if that's okay. Yeah, by all means. Um, Because it was written in 1940. And I can't imagine that 1940 was the first time that phrase was used, but maybe it was. He's writing to Peter Baines and he says, this is on 12th August. He says, this Jung, this is the fateful year for which I have waited more than 25 years. I didn't know that it was such a disaster. Although since 1918, I knew that a terrible fire would spread over Europe beginning in the Northeast. I have no vision beyond 1940 concerning the fate of Europe. This year reminds me of the enormous earthquake in 26 BC that shook down the great temple of Karnak. It was the prelude to the destruction of all temples because a new time had begun. 1940 is the year when we approach the meridian of the first star in Aquarius. It is the premonitory earthquake of the new age. So could that be the first time that phrase was used, that term was used? I don't have definitive research, but I strongly doubt it because I believe the Rosencrucians were aware of the uh, 2,000-year age and the procession of the equinoxes. And, and, um, and so I'm not sure, but I, it, it's food for thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's no question at all that I mean, and for those people who are listening who don't know what we're talking about, um, an astrological age is one-twelfth of the precession cycle of Earth. 
Now, anyone who's ever played with a top and has spun a top knows that as it slows down, it begins to wobble. But the wobble is backwards to the direction of the spin. And if you don't believe me, do it yourself. <laughs> um, you can do it. You can also see it with a gyroscope. Anyone who's held the gyroscope knows that it's spinning one way, but in your hand, it's forcing your hand to wobble backwards. So the earth wobbles like that, except one complete earth wobble is 25,900. I'll get you the exact number unless Laura has well, it. Well, the canonical but number is 25,920, but the actual processional rate, which has now been measured by JPL. It's one degree every 72 years. Yeah, but it's not really that. That's, that's the mathematical ideal. The actual precession rate of the Earth is significantly faster, and it seems to be speeding up, which is really bizarre because the, the again, canonical mainstream physics explanation of precession of the Earth is that the moon, gravitationally tied to the Earth, going around in orbit every, every month, is tugging on the Earth's equator causing the Earth's rotation to be uneven and causing precession. If that was true, as the Earth and Moon are receding from each other, the Moon is basically widening very slowly its orbit at the rate of about an inch and a half per year. And how do we know this? Because of the astronauts and placing the laser reflectors on the Moon and observatories bouncing laser beams from Earth off these reflectors, they can actually measure the metonic increase in the distance of the moon from Earth year by year by year. Problem is, as the moon recedes, its gravitational effect on the Earth gets less at the rate of one over R cubed the uh, the the uh, tidal effect is an r cubed, meaning three you know whatever the number is times the number times the number uh, in terms of your ultimate equation. So if the moon is receding, the 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 um, the effect on the Earth should be less, which means the precession should be increasing longer than twenty five thousand nine hundred twenty years. But in fact, it's measurably getting less, which, of course, tells me that precession has nothing to do with gravitational influences. It's all in the hyperdimensional torsion field model of how rotating systems affect each other in the field. So it's actually roughly like 25,840 years now, not 25,920. And that should cause a very – by the way, there was a major break in that smooth curve, which I don't have time obviously to go into tonight, but it looks like broad picture, someone in historical times literally reached into the cradle and abruptly changed the precession rate of the planet and an entire religion on earth is formed around this new precession rate. And that indicates to me outside influences trying to do something with human history for another total uh, other, other program. Well, if we look backward, we can actually see, you know, as we, uh, because, because the, um, 
wobble is backwards rather than going around the zodiac in the normal way. It goes from the age of Pisces, which we technically are in now, uh, prior to that. Um, was the age of Aries and prior to that, the age of Taurus. And what's interesting is that during the um, age of Taurus was the rise of Hinduism and the Egyptian religions that worshipped um, Baal and or the sacred cow being Taurus. And when the procession moved um, into Aries, then the rise of monotheism and, uh, and of course, Aries is the I, me, mine sign of the Zodiac. It's singularity and the animal, the ram and the paschal lamb, um, you know, as a, and blowing the, uh, the uh, goat horn or the ram's horn for harbinger of spring in Judaism. And then the origin of Christianity being the age of Pisces, the fish, uh, the multiplicity. Um, and there's been books written about the imagery and symbolism of the age of Pisces compared to Christianity. But here's the problem. And that is when you're looking at a, even at the speeded up rate that you mentioned, Richard, that still would be 2,150 years per age, not the 2,000 years that people round off to. Well, the actual, so again, again, the, the, the actual canonical period for each age, if you divide 25, 920 by 12, it's 2,160. Right. And, but what and, I'm saying and, is, and, is hang on, hang on. And, and do you know where that number also appears? Go. It's the diameter of the moon in miles, ah, precisely. So someone put all this together, knows the physics. It's ancient, ancient, ancient. It's been suppressed from our current scientific era. But for a very long time, this was the mathematics and the underlying physics that ruled mythology and the creation of religions. Totally agree. Let me, let me get to the punchline here is what's really important um, is that even at the speeded up rate, if we look at the origin um, of the age of Pisces and whether it's exactly around the time of the birth of Jesus, um, we count our clocks from the origin of what we call this age, give or take it 20 years, 50 years. I don't care. The fact of the matter is that if an age is 2,150 years long or 2,160 years long, we are still 150 years away technically from the age of Aquarius. That's, that's, all that's exactly right. So where did this mythology starting in modern times with the uh, you know, famous uh, Broadway play, you know, the age of Aquarius? And I then, saw that on Broadway. Yep. And, and then the crew of Apollo 13, headed by C Commander Lovell, decided to name his spacecraft, the Apollo spacecraft, the Aquarius. And he ostensibly said it was because of the Broadway play, knowing NASA and how symbolic they are. I'm, of course, thinking there's a lot deeper reasons why he decided to call the 13th mission of Apollo Aquarius. Uh, but be that as it may, there seem to be competing traditions here, a kind of a gloss, a modern veneer, and then the real story buried underneath. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guests this morning are Rick Levine, astrologer par excellence, and Laura London, expert on Jungian analysis and coincidences. And, oh, speaking of coincidences, meaningful or otherwise, listen to this.
Side of the news is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well verified references headed through vigilance and discernment. Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. And the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. 
we are back. Rick, Laura, who wants to go first? <clears throat> Laura, I, your turn. Well, I just can't stop looking at this Capricorn solstice chart. Uh, and when I mentioned that Jupiter and Saturn are changing signs and why I brought up the age of Aquarius is because they are at zero degrees Aquarius. And we didn't mention that they're being squared by Uranus then in Taurus. And just to kind of usher out this year of 2020, for me, what I know about astrology is this is kind of a big shift in energy. Am I right, Rick? Oh, my, 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 my. Wouldn't that be interesting? A big shift. Ah! <laughs> it's, it's, it's huge. And, and, and um, the, the thing to understand is that although Saturn and Pluto line up every 35, 40 years, um, about three times a century. I always call it Walt's time for civilization because every <laughs> century it goes one, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, and, one. And you, can tra- and you can track back the Saturn-Pluto conjunctions to, you know, to uh, um, the summer of 1947 within days of India and Pakistan, you know, partition and, and freedom from the British Empire. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Uh, to- did, did you say just 1947? Yeah, August 1947. Uh, nine, like 19.47 degrees? Yeah, well, yes, that you could do that if you want. I know you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Come on. If we're looking at yeah. the marking of time by resonance waves, no, you know, I, the whole calendar thing is not an accident. There's a reason there's why Trump looked back at the 1950s as the golden age, 19.5. Even if he yep. doesn't consciously ever ever connect those two it's his intuitive connection his resonance with that era that opened up a whole new set of doorways and where we took i think rick a wrong turn the wrong turn being historically the future we're now living is not the future we should have had and the break point was of course the assassination of john kennedy oh right sure yeah. Well, the, the the thing that I wanted to make, which is very simple and just kind of doubles down on what Laura said correctly, and that is that Saturn, although Saturn and Pluto align every, you know, 30, let's say 35 years or so, the fact of the matter is that in astrology, every planet has a home sign. And the last time Saturn aligned with Pluto while Saturn was in its home sign, was in early 1519, two months to the day after Martin Luther uh, nailed the theses on the wall of the church in Germany that began the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. And this January, Jupiter, I'm sorry, uh, Saturn-Pluto alignment in a way, separate from the whole COVID pandemic craziness of all of that that's going on, there's another whole layer of deconstruction um, of the uh, status quo that has to do with a depowering of that which was central authority as it was the depowering of central authority of Rome at the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in 1519. 
And so the importance of, of Capricorn, because that, that conjunction occurred in Capricorn this year, and on top of that, Jupiter, which is a 12-year cycle, Jupiter spent the entire year in the sign of Capricorn also kind of making this even a heavier weight. And in a way, it's the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction at, on December 21st that's the final punctuation of this crazy, incredible year. But as Laura pointed out, the fact that just four days prior to the conjunction, Saturn leaves Capricorn, enters Aquarius, so it won't be back in Aqu into Capricorn for another 27 years, and Jupiter two days later leaves Capricorn, and they make their alignment in the next sign. And what that is, is it's an, a marker. Whether I mean, it's not to do with the age of Aquarius, but even if this is 100 or several hundred years coming, it's a marker as we look forward and in the imagination, we begin to create this imaginal scaffolding well, that can, for can, the next hundred years will be filling in events. Can we look at it kind of like uh, old time, you know, shortwave radio where they used to talk about heterodyning and and multiplexing and harmonics? In other words, it's not the direct sign, but it's a resonant node, so you're getting some effect. And then I have another question. Exactly. Uh, uh, um, perfectly, exactly. And I grew up in a household. My dad was a radio engineer and a ham operator, and, and all those term, terms are, come from my childhood. Exactly. These are resonant frequencies. It's like having an antenna you know, tuned to a, you know, 25th harmonic and being able to pick up the frequency, you know, um, you know, on a jump. It's exactly what's going on. Because a wave is a wave is a wave, whether it's electromagnetic or torsion or whatever. Okay, more fundamental question. We're talking a lot about characteristics and qualities of these planets and constellations and where the conjunction occurs around the ecliptic and all that. There's yes. no there's no real theory of the case. All this accumulated data is really empirical and is a result again this is my my question the result of literally thousands of years of astrologers writing stuff down and seeing what works and in the ideal seeing what doesn't work so we've had this distillation of seeing patterns and we're attributing the consciousness and the human relations and the events that are important to everyday people to these patterns. But the underlying mathematical matrix, the theory, really, we're, 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 we are nowhere near reconstructing what the real ancients, the super high tech civilization that kind of left I us here. You, Richard, but you know of the work of Arthur Young, yes? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I knew Arthur very well. All right. So Arthur Young wrote this amazing broadside treatise. Tell, on, before you do that, tell people who Arthur Young was. Well, most people don't know who Arthur Young was, but they've seen a helicopter. Yep. And Arthur Young was the engineer who was the patent holder on what we call the Bell helicopter. You got it. I mean, he, he was a brilliant engineer, but he was also a brilliant metaphysician. And many, many decades later, after he left Bell and went to the West Coast, he and Ruth set up something called the Institute for the Study of Consciousness, and he actually had me present my first public presentation on Sedonia in the Institute there in Berkeley, California. Lucky, lucky you. <laughs> they were no, amazing seriously. people, amazing people. But, but 
but most people don't know that Arthur Young wrote this monograph. It's about a, I don't know, maybe a 60 or 70 page monograph on the relationship of the 12 signs of the Zodiac unfolded according to the dynamics of the variance on Newton's law of acceleration and motion. Oh. Yep. So there's, now I'm not saying that's the only way to look at this, and I think it's much deeper. I think it's much deeper, exactly. But he started with Newton and gravity and attraction. I think think it's, I think it's, um, it's hyperdimensional. I think all those factors are important, but this is simple Newtonian mathematics. Hmm. Okay. So I'm basically correct when I say that up, excluding Arthur for a minute, um, this pattern is an empirical learned pattern going back thousands of years, handed on from astrologer to astrologer to astrologer, right? I, I would agree with you on that. Would you, Laura? Yeah, but there's so many different interpretations. There's so many different schools of astrology, right? I'm getting yes. to that, yes. Okay. That was my big question because That's what drives me crazy. Physicists, scientists like what we call the unique solution, meaning there's really only one right answer. Yeah. You know, in physics, in celestial mechanics, and going to the moon, either you get your laws of physics right or you crash. But in astrology, there are all these different variances of interpretation in schools, and that's what drives the mainstream to the point where they say, "Oh, it's all nonsense." Because there is no yeah, one well, unique solution. So what's the solution to the lack of the solution, Rick? Well, look, no, no one has ever seen an electron because, because when scientists look subatomically, what they see are clouds of electron possibilities. This whole idea of finite mechanics based upon the illusion that Newtonian mechanics works at the microcosmic and macrocosmic level just simply doesn't hold up. Right. And I'm sorry that that's inconvenient for people <laughs> who would like to have a mathematical known finite example. But anyone you know who knows the story of Werner Heisenberg, who couldn't sleep for months because he was so freaked out that the laws of motion were not you know, we're, we're not being carried out by the microcosmic particles as they bounced around, you know, that the, the universe is not deterministic. That's where Newton falls short in this day and age. That's where Descartes, who is perhaps one of the giants that Newton sta- stood upon his shoulders when Newton said, I see so far because I stand, because uh, I, I, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Descartes basically said, give me enough mathematical formulas and I'll know everything about everything. And that's just not true. Hmm. So, so we can look at these interpretations, Laura, as a kind of a probabilistic cloud of possibilities with these alignments and configurations and conjunctions. I, I would say so. Uh, I am still focused on looking at it uh, literally uh, because but I have both, Laura. Laura. I mean, there are some things that are are questionable or probabilistic, but the fact that Jupiter aligns from Earth's point of view with Saturn at a particular day, at a particular moment, like clockwork every 20 years, is not anything that anyone in any discipline of any sort of astrology would argue with. Right, right. That's what I love about it. 
it's the interpretation uh, where I get caught. And and that's so, for a lot of people in the so-called mainstream who are not mm-hmm. astrologers or, or, you know, read their horoscopes or whatever, get caught because there's so many variances of interpretation. It's like whichever side you come down on, you're going to be right. And, of course, in science, that's not the way things work. Mm. Well, I would even say that, you know, if you put two botanists in front of a tree and ask them to describe it, they may take very different slants on what they see, whether one is an evolutionary biologist and the other one, you know, is a classification by you know, botanist. Um, and there are multiple ways of looking at the same thing. Hmm. Yes. The other problem, more fundamental, I'm going to toss this to Rick. There is a real discrepancy between the classic astronomical procession and, and, and uh, you know, constellation uh, assignations and alignments and the astrological interpretation of the characteristics of these background constellations and their impact on human behavior because yeah. the two systems mathematically are, are not aligned. And well, that's and a real di- problem for me. And they diverge at the rate of one seventy second of a degree a year. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But 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 that is actually only a problem if you're ignorant. And I don't mean ignorant as stupid. I mean if you don't know what it is, then that's a problem. And unfortunately, even not only most astronomers, but most astrologers don't know really what they're talking about, you know, when they talk about the difference between what astrologers refer to as the sidereal zodiac, sidereal meaning of the stars, and the tropical zodiac, meaning the zodiac based on seasons, the tropic of Cancer, tropic of Capricorn, and the, um, you know, and the inclination of the Earth's axis and its, and its relationship to the uh, four cardinal points that we talked about earlier, the solstices and the equinoxes. And the truth of the matter is that Einstein understood that everything in the universe moves and that whenever you looked at a problem, you had to create a frame of reference. Once you create the frame of reference, then everyone else, everything else fit into that frame of reference. And there are two different main frames of references that can be used in astrology. One of them is spatial and the other is temporal. Oh, space and time. The spatial one is the one that relates, relates things to the actual physical positions of the constellations. That is sidereal astrology. It uses what's called the sidereal zodiac based upon the constellations. The other, which most modern astrologers use, is tropical astrology, which is based upon the seasonal zodiac, which as even though there are stars out there, this is all to do with the relationship of cycles to the cardinal points, meaning that every year <clears throat> the, the uh, tropical zodiac is set to be 90 degree angles at the four cardinal points. And it's just a different way of mapping. Both systems are valid within the context just like you can map something using a quadrilateral mapping system, you know, Cartesian coordinates or polar mapping. They're both true. They just both have different frames of reference. Hmm. Uh, we could pursue this and it would get very complex. So I'm going to resist the, uh, 
the uh, uh, temptation. Because to me, the thing that I've not heard, except a couple of folks have been posting something in the last few years as I've been looking in the in the in the physics in terms of how the physics is modulated by the Earth's orbit around the Sun. To me, the cardinal starting point is not in Aries; it's the galactic center. That four million solar mass black hole spinning at eleven times per second, which, by the way, is a tetrahedral number. How do the guys at Berkeley, you know, figure that one out? Um, is kind of like a marker. And if you have this huge alignment, which every single year, even as precession is going on at a, at a minuscule level, that marker sets the metronome of the annual cycle. And therefore, in my way of trying to reconcile these two different coordinate systems, the missing component is the angular relationship to the black hole alignment every winter and summer. Right, which occurs a day or two prior to the winter solstice. Yes. Um, and, you know, and, and there are, I mean, modern astrologers, many modern astrologers, not all, maybe not even most, um, use the galactic center as a point as if it was a significant point unto itself like the sun or the moon. Oh, it's um, huge. It's enormous in the, in the physics. If you look at this from the torsion perspective, it's got to be the driver. Yeah. What is it? Right. What is it around 27 degrees Sag? Yes. Rick? Yes. Yep. So it's around December 18th. Yeah. Okay. And it's and it's shifting. And the other thing at the that rate of one, at the rate of one degree every 72 years. <laughs> you keep referring to that. Tells me that you know when I was born, the constellations literally were different than they are in tonight. And when I go out to the sky and look. They look the same, but intellectually, I know they're not the same. Is you know, this whole session thing is used by astronomers. Oh, every two, three, five years, some astronomer will come out with something saying, astrologers are idiot. Your signs have changed and no one, they don't even tell you that. Modern astrology is wrong. And the fact of the matter is that what modern astronomers call precession was discovered by astrologers. And no, we're not idiots. We know about it. They just don't know the difference between mapping techniques based upon constellations versus mapping techniques based upon the sun's relationship with the Tropic of Cancer and Capricorn. Well, the analog would be on Earth, there are two different mapping systems. There's geodetic and geographic. And yes. when I was saying last night that whoever put them obelisk Notice how this loops back so elegantly. Whoever put the obelisk in that little canyon in Utah put it within a whisker of twice 19.47. It's actually about three, three and a half miles too far south to be twice 19.47. But that's on a spherical Earth. The Earth is not a sphere. The Earth mm -hmm. is an oblate spheroid. So as you get nearer the equator, and we're what, roughly, well, 38 north is, is where, where Utah is, the, the degrees between geographic and geodetic are not the same. It's different mapping systems, and they map different things. They have different objectives. I prefer the geodetic because that's in relation to the center of the planet, the spinning 
momentum of Earth itself. And I haven't, again, had time. Someone is out there in the audience. You have time. Tell me what the geodetic latitude of the obelisk was. And I'm going to bet dollars to Navy beans. It's closer to the geodetic system than it is to the geographic system, which, of course, is what Google Earth is giving you. And don't everybody speak at once. I just noticed something. Uh, I don't. I don't have a follow up to what you just said, Richard. But uh, I don't know if everybody is aware of the fact that Jung used astrology, and a couple of years ago, a two volume set came out. Uh, the gentleman that I was referring to at the beginning of the show, who referenced Kubrick's ob- uh, the monolith. Now I'm saying obelisk. Did you say obelisk, Richard? Well, I don't call it a monolith because the monolith right. was, was a slab. An obelisk is something that's raised like a monument, but it can have a different geometry. And in this case, right. the geometry was equilateral, meaning it was taking the 2D equilateral triangle, raising it in elevation on a 12-foot high stainless steel three-sided tower, which makes it mathematically a tetrahedron. Have you ever seen a 12-foot tetrahedral obelisk before? No, 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 no. No, no. I haven't either. No, no, no. What I no, want to so know they, is, and this is completely diversionary, mm-hmm. why did the guys in the helicopter not have a tape measure with them? Why didn't they do any measurements? Like, for instance, I'm willing to bet dollars to Navy Beans, given all the other synchronicities, that each side panel of the obelisk was 19 and a half inches wide. And I can't prove it now because it disappeared. I have an important question, Richard. Sure. What's a Navy bean? Uh, Rations in in the Navy. Thank thank you. Yeah. And there's a great line in Star Trek. Uh, Gene wrote, you know, in a script, uh, Lafayette, one of, one of the, uh, uh, you know, kind of guest stars that would come and go on on the on the original series. There's some yeah. point of preference in the script where something's going to happen, and this guy says to the captain, "I'd bet dollars to Navy Beans that." <laughs> Got it. This thank, is going to happen. Thank you. For the, this, these are important things to me. Thank you. <laughs> okay. There are some other photos of the top. Yes. That was left behind. I have some other photos of it. So well, if we I'm could wondering... somehow get a scale so we could measure it, because the top right. had to be the, the width of one side. Right, exactly. So exactly. can we get yes. accurate enough measurements to know whether it's 19.5? See, someone said, and it may have been one of the, one of the uh, helicopter guys, he said, we think it was about 18 inches on a side. Well, about, I mean, a mm-hmm. biologist is supposed to be a scientist. In his field, would he say, well, it's about – no, of course not. But because nobody thought of this thing as anything but an art prank, they weren't serious about it. Nobody except us has been serious about this, Right. which is why they haven't found anything yet. So what's going to happen when somebody does come out and claim responsibility and say it was an art installation? I will make you a bet. Dollars okay. to Navy Beans. Nobody is ever going to do that, ever, 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 ever. That's not the way secret societies trying to impute knowledge to those who have eyes to see. Right, Rick? You don't present uh, that information to the great masses. You present it to those that resonate. 
Yeah. And we're coming yeah. up to a break. We're coming up to the witching hour, the midnight for which this uh, particular program has been named. We're talking about astrology, hyperdimensional astrology, the clockwork, the clockwork of the universe in which we are a part, in fact, which we are the product of. You're on the other side of midnight. Our subject tonight is hyperdimensional projections of what is to come. So when we come back, instead of talking about specific events, I want to talk about trends. Given the trends of 2020, given the turbulent times, think of it kind of like a huge ship cutting through the ocean with bow wakes, turbulence ahead of the events, rippling backward through time from what we are approaching. What could be happening in the months just ahead? Stay tuned. Midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. everyone to the other side of midnight because we're now on the other side here in the land of enchantment 
The music, of course, is Pink Floyd. <clears throat> time. What is time? Is time a series of resonances? A kind of a tremor in the force? A lot of things flying around tonight here in the Land of Enchantment. And Laura, you just discovered or you communicated another another resonance, another synchronicity. Yeah, I was I looked over and I have the two volume set. Uh, Liz Green is a she's an astrologer and you might have do you know her, Rick? I do. She's also a Jungian analyst and she is yeah, so she wrote a two-volume set on Jung and astrology because I think I started saying this earlier that not a lot of people know that Jung uh, was interested in astrology. He used astrology, and one of his uh, daughters was a practicing astrologer, Gret Bauman. But why I bring this up is because uh, Liz Green was given access to Jung's private library and his personal papers and the man that I had mentioned at the beginning of the show, Sonu Shamdasani, uh, who I interviewed recently about the black books who mentioned uh, Kubrick in 2001 and the, and the monolith, he wrote the foreword to this book. It's titled Jung's studies in astrology, prophecy, magic, and the qualities of time. So I just looked over and saw that and it, it's just it's it's everywhere and it's and it's stunning and the reason why I had this uh, book out is because I wanted to see if it was mentioned the age of Aquarius and I, I know I keep harping on it but the reason why is because I wanted to bring it up tonight uh, not just because Jung thought that the the beginning of that was 1940 but when I was talking to Dr. Merritt about it. He said whenever he pointed out something that's, I think, kind of obvious, but maybe it isn't. He said, whenever you go from one era to another, there's a lot of chaos. You know, the old forms have to break down and and that Jung believed that one of the qualities of a new age and he did coin that term new age is that new spiritual forms are going to emerge and that makes me think of what we're talking about tonight. Uh, another, so, so the mention of the age of Aquarius in this book, Jung's studies in astrology is that, um, you know, it's not going to be a smooth passage. Jung didn't believe that this uh, passage from one age to the next would be smooth or loving in this, higher spiritual consciousness that that it was a a dangerous time uh, and it was fraught with the human potential for self-destruction which also leads me to something else that I kind of thought we were going to talk about tonight which is our uh, our kind of split from from nature and why we're in the state that we're in right now. Well, it's not just our split from nature. It's our split from each other. Mm. We are. That's part of of nature. We are proven that we are now two camps, two tribes, two whatever, Mm. and never the twain shall meet. And last night, one of the things that we talked about, and I don't know whether we talked about it a lot on the show, but after the show and the after party, 
you know, Steve and you and I were having this discussion about the extraordinary positive aspect of disclosure yeah. of formal congressional hearings, White House, you know, approbation of the process, the Pentagon, the military industrial complex going along because it will present the human race for the first time with a comparison between all of us humans and something that's totally unknown, the other, the alien, the extraterrestrial, the whatever or whoever is out there. And in the best of all possible worlds, that will allow humans to see each other as brothers and sisters and the other as the other. And so we will kind of glom together in unison against the unknown and this is the major factor that is desperately needed, I believe, and Steve believes, to unite the human race as humans, as a family, against what is going to be revealed. That's the best of all possible worlds. Unfortunately, in the every transition is noisy and turbulent. There could be, um, as my grandmother used to say, many a slip twixt the cup and the lip in that model. Yeah, agreed. Biological systems reach an area or reach a, a level of complexity in which they have to break down before they reorganize at a higher level. You're a little off mic, Rick. Sorry. Much better. Um, biological systems reach a level of complexity when chaos, which is not randomness, begins to take over. In order for one system to break down, in order for the evolution of the higher order of intelligence or system to come into place. Now, is that axiomatic? I mean, is that just kind of we're looking back and we say, okay, these past transitions have had this pattern, or is it somehow built into the furniture, into the architecture? Is it inevitable? Because I would well, say I think that it's mathematical. I think, super, I think it's, superposition I, is, is, yeah. it takes the place of substitution. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think it's mathematical, and I think that the superpositioning is a conflict between uh, the old and the new. You know that the old exists in in worn out structures that are no longer functioning, and the new exists in imagination that's not yet material. Okay, let's go back to frequencies. If this is all ultimately driven by frequencies, would it I be agree. would it be appropriate to say? that a new resonance pattern finds like and similarity and affinity for those that are in resonance and those who are not kind of fall by the wayside and they get very, very upset in so doing. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. In fact, I would add, an, I would, I would agree with that and I would add to it. What then occurs is what Freud called infantile regression and that is that under that pressure of stress and it's not the way it should be and things are uncertain, what happens is that the stressed biological system goes back to the past and makes it look perfect in its mind when it was, when it was apparently not as good in reality, and yet it goes back to this more perfect state that never existed. Make America great again. I was just thinking of Trump's affinity for the 1950s, 19.5. 
<laughs> okay, uh, let's do this. We've got a ton of interesting stuff in radio with pictures, including some really amazing uh, Voyager imagery of Jupiter and Saturn from Rick. And then, Laura, you've got some really intriguing things. Why don't we, for those people that would like to maybe refer to radio with pictures, apropos of our earlier conversation, quickly go through these submissions and kind of relate them to some of the points we, we touched on earlier? Rick, you go first. No, I'm not there yet. I got to get there. Okay. Well, then we can fill. I can hum. I could tap dance. Uh, um, <laughs> or I could ask Laura, have you found anything I'm, new on the monolith um, on, on Google? The chat's been in the last three hours. Well, I didn't know if you saw the picture of the dirt of underneath the triangle. I'm bringing that up now. At the beginning, uh, I mentioned that the original story from the Bureau of Land Management said that it was embedded. Right, and I actually saw a close-up smartphone video of someone who had taken a real, you know, close view of the base, and there were three uh, equilateral triangle incisions done by obviously a concrete rotary saw, and then they had filled the incisions with epoxy. And then they had embedded this very precisely measured three-sided obelisk into the uh, epoxy. It had anchored it in the bedrock, which is an inch or so below the, the, you know, the, the dirt, the topsoil, whatever's blowing around there. And it was a incredibly stable, as you can tell from the idiots who were sitting on top, right? which I find but, just ab- abominable. Who in their but, right mind would go to any monument built by anybody – and literally try to climb all over it. Well, they were planking. They were. There was one gentleman that was planking. You know what planks yeah, are? Yeah, 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 yeah. Work on your core. Yeah, oh, you yeah, do. Yeah. yeah. Right. So by embedded in the ground, the embedded is one inch. Well, embedded means anything below the surface. Okay, I thought it, it was really in there. Well, see, nobody knew that. That was an inference. That was an assumption. That, you know, but so, whoever built this thing really knew how to build. The, the weird part about this picture that uh, was released by the Bureau of Land Management is next to this indentation in the ground, there are three rocks that are positioned like the belt of Orion. I'm sorry. I know I see that everywhere. No, but... no. You may not be projecting. Remember, whoever these guys were, they know everything we do and more. You know, I've always made the assumption in this research, in my research, that I'm the dumbest kid on the block. That whatever I figured out, somebody has all known long, long time before. These guys, and again, I go back to who in their right mind, if you're a thief, would go and steal an artifact and then leave a key part of it behind. Unless you're the builders, you're the makers, and you left the key part because that was the essence of the message. And how did a crew get in there? Because obviously one person could not remove this monolith by themselves. How could a crew get in there undetected when there are so many tourists? That's what I was wondering. Descending on this place with cameras and and tripods and and taking video. So what if they were the the crew that removed it was there at night? So what? Exactly. We have life. Well, the only way I can think that could have happened is if there were like a handful of people and the creator came in and he basically handed them money and said, keep your mouth shut. And they paid them 
$1,000, whatever, and made them sign some kind of legal document, a non-disclosure, so there'd be legal repercussions. Because if, 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 you're, if you're bold enough to have hiked into the wilderness and be there unless it's sunset, I mean, I don't know about any of you guys, but I've been in the desert. I live in the desert. The skies are extraordinary. Can you imagine being a backpacker or a camper, getting to the site and then leaving just because the sun goes down? That's when the show really begins. So I don't imagine in the last few days there was any time when there was nobody there. So how did someone come in and steal everything except the most important part, which is the tetrahedral message and a cairn of seven piled up rocks? <laughs> Rick, have you found what you're looking for yet? Well, yeah. Do you want me to go through the pictures that are on the radio picture? Yes, 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 yes. So people can relate that to our earlier conversation. Well, okay. So, so um, A, B, and C are just pictures of the the imagery associated with Jupiter, Saturn, and Pluto. Jupiter and Saturn are just showing the symbols of them because they're what's aligning on December twenty first. What Laura, you know, talked about and what we've all talked about. And because Pluto has been in the picture and the um, Saturn alignment with Pluto was exact um, in the autumn of 2001 and the bombing of the World Trade Tower, that represents the phoenix, the, the arising of the new life form from the ashes of the ruins of the destruction that was prior. And that's kind of the where we are in the big scheme of things. So that's what those three pictures are for. Okay. The next, the next slide, D... Um, is actually just a quote from Plato in reference to what I would say is Jupiter. And what he said was, what he wrote was, excess generally causes reaction and produces a change in the opposite direction, whether it be in the seasons or in individuals or in governments. Kind of like a Newtonian assessment of humans. Yes, but Jupiter is expansion and Saturn is contraction. That's the energetics. Jupiter is large and gaseous, and Jupiter is is about gas expanding. It's big ideas. It's anything that's magnifying. It's amplification. These are the archetypal See, that meanings. that gets of, back of to this, this real problem I've got. Sorry to interrupt, but it, it really bothers me. How did the ancients, just looking at a point of light, know about giants and expansion and the Jupiter's the biggest planet and all that? It, 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 it's got to be something deeper. These characteristics attached to these objects have to have arisen from another data source, maybe? Yeah, a- aliens. No, that's, that's too cliche. Or the collective unconscious. That's too Jungian. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking ancient no, heritage. Richard, it's very simple. If you watch in the sky... And watch once a month the moon coming up and joining up with Jupiter and beginning to compare that with with once a month when the moon joins up and with Saturn. And you begin to see that the events of Jupiter seem to be kind of easier and bigger and more optimistic. And Saturn seems to be walls and structures. You begin to create what is what what we call archetypes. That's I mean, what I'm looking for. Over, over thousands of years but you are more. But you could ask astrologers from pretty much any place on the planet, anywhere in time, going back at least 2,200 years, 
and they would give you the same archetypal descriptions of Jupiter and Saturn, as I would. Okay, so we're talking about an empirical pattern of historical evidence all put together to look for these occurring uh, themes. Yes. Okay. Now, the next picture down is a picture of the first bombing of the World Trade Tower on September 11, 2001. But in the bottom right of that screen is a picture of what we astrologers would call a horoscope wheel. Um, that's like a telescope is a device used to see things tele far away. And a microscope is a device used to scope. Scope is to, to see things that are micro tiny. A horoscope is really just a technology to see the hour. Well, wait, mean, wait, wait, wait. Hor- hor- horoscope. Horos. Hor- horos. Time. Yeah. Hor- horos. Well, Greek. for um, Greek horo meant hour. And yes, time from horos. Yes. Okay. Now. What we're looking at in this is a map of implied Earth in the center of that red line and Saturn pulling one way and Jupiter, I'm sorry, and Pluto pulling the other. And so all this is showing graphically, astrologically graphically, is what an astrologer would call a Saturn Pluto opposition, meaning that there are no other planets, there's no sun in this picture. Earth is implied in the center, and it's just that on, uh, in the fall of 2001, the boundaries of Saturn were stretched by Pluto's need for deconstruction, reconstruction. Mm. So that's all that picture is of. And as you the described next- all that, Rick, we just crossed 1219.5. Aha. <laughs> well, there we are. Here we're at 1120, but the, that's the problem with relativity. So, yeah, well, the program originates here, so my time zone predominates. Anyway, con- sorry, continue, continue. Uh, the, the, the next slide is just something that we've talked about. This is F. Most pe- F. F. Most people don't think about it. Most people relate astrology to, oh, that person you know, is a clever Gemini. That person is a secretive Scorpio. That person, whatever. You know. yeah. but, but this slide says... As planetary cycles affect the affairs of individuals, so too do they inform cultural affairs, the rise and fall of civilization, civilizations, and the evolution of ideas and technology. This is called mundane astrology. It's astrology of the world rather than the astrology of the individual. Oh, mundane, not as unimportant. Correct. Mundane as in Latin mundus, uh, the world. Okay. Globe. Okay. The next slide is just a description of this ongoing dance between Saturn and Pluto. The cycle of Saturn and Pluto create a rhythm of boundary creation. That would be Saturn. Boundary destruction. That would be Pluto and subsequent adjustment and adaptation. It's just Hmm. a statement about this ongoing um, cycle between Saturn and Pluto um, that has been going on for as long as we have recorded history. We can see that things like Mohammed taking Mecca happened on a uh, Saturn-Pluto conjunction, the Arab invasion of of Spain, and, and 700 years later when the Arabs were kicked out or the last, when the Catholics took Spain back, 
you know, that was a Saturn-Pluto conjunction. A lot of the Giordano, Bruno, and Copernicus and Kepler um, stuff um, was all around Saturn-Pluto um, aspects. The history mm-hmm. here is very deep, but this is just a statement about an observation. And the fact is that 2020 is a key point in this cycle of Saturn and Pluto, where we see boundary boundary creation, boundary destruction. For that matter, even the plague or what we would call the COVID-19 pandemic, it's about boundary creation, immune system, boundary destruction, the virus breaking through those boundaries and how we adjust and adapt to it. So it's Mm. on a micro level, but it's the same energy as, you know, as a redefinition, you know, of a map after a war. Okay. Another very irritating question. Since Tombo, who I had the extraordinary pleasure to meet at JPL one afternoon and have a really amazing conversation, since Pluto was only found by Tombo in 1930, how do we have enough historical perspective to understand what characteristics this little 1,500-mile-wide object we call Pluto orbiting at the edge of the known solar system has? Because hundreds, thousands of astrologers immediately jump on it and start doing research. I mean, the question is even better when you ask, what about Chiron, which was first discovered in 1977, and a generation of astrologers pounded away and communicated back and forth until there was enough mythology on it that led to research that led to, um, you know, books being written and discussed amongst the, you know, astrologers themselves. It's, it's observation and, you know, and analysis and then synthesis. So they've done what? Apply a retrocausal analysis uh, looking well, at, at... Oh, and the current, and, and the current. In other words, if, if, if I learn that there is this newly discovered planet and I know that we're, and I have an ephemeris that tells me where that planet is at any given moment in time... And has been in the past... Just like uh, looking at where Saturn might have been in the year 357 BC. Okay. You know, we didn't we we don't we didn't do the observation, but we can apply Kepler's laws of motion, and with some degree of certainty. I get that it's never certain, but you know, but we can basically make some um, pretty pretty uh, safe assumptions as to where Pluto was 50 years ago and where it'll be in 50 years. And in fact, those assumptions which were made. Back in the 1930s and 40s, we now have the real evidence of where Pluto is now, you know, based upon those mathematics to say, yep, that worked. Same thing's true with Neptune, which was discovered in the 19th century, or Uranus, which was discovered, you know, in the 18th century. See, it'd be really cool, going back to how I opened tonight's show, about science is nothing if it's not prediction. I wrote that in, in the promo for tonight. If we didn't have to wait to discover this stuff and look back, if we could use this pattern matching mechanism to say, okay, there's this weird thing that keeps recurring in human history. There's got to be another object out there that's causing this in resonance with the known objects and predict the existence of a new planet and where it should be. I'll tell you one problem with that is that there's not another object out there. There's hundreds of thousands. As you know, NASA tracks well over a half a million objects going around the sun. If everything is connected to everything, then how do you isolate 
one from another. We're working with the biggest, most obvious. Bye. Back to that Newtonian problem of thinking that if we have formulas, we can know everything and it's deterministic. It isn't. Well, within a boundary is deterministic. Otherwise, you couldn't predict anything. In other words, I'm saying that below a certain mass, things moving around out there don't count. In our model, it's mass angular momentum. Because Jupiter, uh, Jupiter, if, because Pluto is so tiny, you know, after the whole Lowell thing where they have now come to the conclusion that he did not, with equations, predict where Pluto was and then Tombo found it right. according to Lowell's prediction. It's like, right. well, why should Pluto be significant at all? Because it's so tiny and so far away. What makes the difference in the torsion field model is its inclination of 17 degrees to the Earth's orbit. Angle is critical. And the fact it's so damn far away, it has a very large angular angular momentum. momentum. Exactly, exactly. Fred Fred Allen Wolf, many, many years ago, um, basically took the time to explain to me why Newton's... um, uh, uh, Newton's understanding of the of what he called angular gravity, or what we might call angular momentum, was so important in understanding why something like Neptune or Uranus or Pluto um, has a higher uh, um, angular momentum than, let's say, even Saturn or Jupiter. Exactly, it's that huge moment arm, the distance yep. from from what it's orbiting, which is the sun. Okay, another question. Then we got. About a minute and a half till the to the bottom of the hour. Uh, there's a lot of rumors now about Planet Nine. Remember when they demoted politically Pluto? It's now supposed to be a, a dwarf planet or some nonsense like that. Um, and they're looking for the real ninth planet. There are indications based on cometary motions and Kuiper Belt object motions that there is some big guy out there which A, is very far away, and B, maybe up to five times the mass of the Earth, a super-Earth. That should surely, in the astrological pattern going back millennia, show up as something really important that is unknown but says, look at me, look at me, because I'm doing this and this and this. Has anybody seen something like that yet? Or have they looked? Yeah, the same could be said with, you know, when Uranus was discovered and Neptune and Pluto, and yet they all seem to fit in. The answer is um, very simple. I don't know. Oh, that's a good honest answer. Okay, on that, yeah. on that note, let us pause. My guests this morning are Laura London and Richard Stein. Rick, Rick Stein. What am I doing? Rick Levine. I'm obviously being sent a message vibrationally from somebody. I'll get a phone call from a guy named Stein. The only Stein I ever knew was G. Harry Stein, who was a brilliant science fiction writer. Anyway, yes, Rick Levine, Laura London, on the other side of midnight on the 29th of November, and this from um, Pink Floyd is called Time. Actually, I'm, I'm making another mistake. This is something even more appropriate. The great gig in the sky. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. This is in honor of the Chinese. Now, I know their mission is not a manned mission or a crude mission, but it's a prelude to a stunning new development of the solar system, Elon Musk going to the moon, taking tourists, human race finding out what's really there, and an excuse to play one of my other favorite songs, Elton John, Rocket Man. Enjoy. It's lonely out of me On such a timeless flight Oh, no. 
I told everybody a long time ago where I first heard it. I won't repeat the story now. Maybe someday in now? the future. No, no, not about now. Okay, guys, we're back to Laura and Rick. I'll get the names right. <laughs> uh, Rick, we were in the middle of you going through the rest of Radio with Pictures, and then we'll go to Laura. Oh, well, the last couple of pictures are just charts of um, what we've been through this year. And and actually, I closed it because I thought we were done. Oh, no, there they are. So um, very, very simply, um, we have H is the Saturn-Pluto conjunction. Um, and this is a chart for January 12th, 2020. And these pictures are, are these glyphs are all of the planets. And what we are looking at is Mercury with the 23 Saturn with the 22 next to purple Pluto with the 22 and then the sun with the 22. These are plan- these, these, this is the sun, Pluto, Saturn, and Mercury all within one degree of each other in the sky um, at 22, 23 degrees of Capricorn with Jupiter also in Capricorn and the nodal axis of the moon, which I don't want to talk about in depth right now, <laughs> but another key point in astrology and that was just the kickoff of this year. So that is the significant piece there. And you guys can all relate that back to what Rick talked about earlier in terms of these very specific and, and detailed discussions of what, uh, what these had, and shall we say, potentially created or set up the conditions to create. Okay, Laura, no, you're I up. would say, no, 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 that's causal. I would go back to what Laura said, and these are a-causal connecting principles it is synchronistic, but I don't know that one, I don't know that that causes an event any more than the event causes that. See, that's where the torsion model absolutely disagrees. Of course, this causes the events. It creates the pattern. And when the pattern is in place, that's when things happen. Without that pattern, those things would not happen. Well, uh, okay. So I would say that that those can create a pattern, but the events actually um, I would say that this is uh, multivalent, meaning that there are many different ways for an event to attach itself to the torsion field. Mm, okay, I, w- I would agree with that. All right. Uh, Anyhow, okay. let's get through the pictures. I want to hear from Laura. Let's get through these pictures. That's, that's, that's the part that I'm really interested in, Rick, and and I like what you guys just came up with because – I try to keep my mouth shut when it comes to that because <laughs> I don't believe uh, – anyway, it doesn't matter. No, what no, believe, tell us, tell us. Yeah, no, it does. I, yes, come on, come on. 
You're on the no, other side I, of midnight. Come on. I, I really like what you said because I do think that we are being influenced. We don't. We can't just do whatever we want, whenever we want. Well, what's it, that it great line, work. Rick? That that cliche. The uh, was it uh, the, the gods impel the, the the stars impel. They don't compel. Which gets us back to probabilities. It's kind of like a probability cloud. When these configurations occur, certain events are more likely to occur, but free will also is somewhere in the mix. So you don't have to follow the pattern. But there are some patterns that are that that um, it would be difficult not to follow. You've seen the poster that says gravity. It's not just a good idea. <laughs> it's, it's a law. <laughs> yeah. You know. So. The Greeks called that hemarmene. It was the fate that was going to happen whether you did something about it or not. Hmm. Now, there's also, there are other types of fate. And I agree with what Laura, well, with what both of you are saying. There are certain times when it's easier to manifest certain things and it feels impossible to manifest something else although someone can always come along and manifest something that seems to be impossible. So again, it's not mechanical. Hmm. Okay. Laura, you're up. Well, I just came across another synchronicity and we could get into that word still some more because it's two outer events. So technically is it a synchronicity? Because Jung said that the criteria was, and it had to be an inner and an outer. So, my first item in Radio with Pictures is an article that was written by a Jungian analyst uh, earlier this year, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. We did an episode about it, and I have it here in my notes that he says something, he, he uses a, a, a catchphrase um, that is very similar to one that Rick uses. Uh, Dr. Merritt says, think archetypally and apply it locally. Oh. Rick, Rick, what do you say? Uh, For years, I've been using my closing line on things that I do. Think think cosmically, act locally. Yeah. Well, you know, that comes from that political cliche. And I don't know whether it was uh, uh, one of the speakers of the house, the very famous one, whose name escaping me. Chris Matthews used to work for him. He was good friends with Ronald Reagan. globally, act. Tip, Tip O'Neill, Tip O'Neill, um, yep. think globally, act locally, or all politics yep. is local. Yep. Okay, so what does Dr. Merritt in his fascinating paper, COVID-19, Inflection Point in the Anthropocene Era and the Paradigm Shift of Jung's New Age, say? Right. So he's talking about the paradigm shift and how because of our big brain – we're not so in touch with our instincts. And Jung talked about the two million year old man within. And he, he Jung said that our task, our supreme challenge that he gave us was to unite our cultured side with the two million year old man within, uh, or what Merritt calls the indigenous one within. Which would be because Homo he, erectus. The indigenous one within? Yeah. Ancient, two million years, Homo erectus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the same guys, you know, with the clubs and the whatever that appeared around the monolith in Arthur and, and Stanley's classic. 
And so here's another synchronicity. Uh, Dr. Merritt says that the the 2-million-year-old archetypal image, okay, this 2-million-year-old within, that Jung saw the – how do I want to say this? Jung saw it archetypally. The image that Jung linked with it is that of Merlin. And Rick, what is your nickname? <laughs> Laura, Laura, Laura. It's not my nickname. That's right. It's, it's your my, middle name. It's my legal middle name. Your it legal is middle is Merlin. Did right. you have that change, Rick, deliberately? Um, yeah, about thirty years ago. Okay. And the reason was, um, because because people called me that. Yeah, it was the beginning of online, even in my computer work that I was doing. It was just like I that people said called me the wizard and called me Merlin. I had a great deal of affinity toward the um, toward the historical or what we know of the historical period. Um, and on a divorce, when people get to reclaim their maiden name, um, I reclaimed my maiden name from a former lifetime. Interesting. I love it. Okay, what's your second item, Laura? So. Well, just to finish that up, oh, okay, uh, okay, sorry. That Jung had an affinity for Merlin, and he believed that Merlin was the figure that would help us make that evolution to integrate our what he called our Christian side with nature, and back to a sense of sacredness with nature, which is what the alchemists were doing. And Jung said that the secret of Merlin was carried on by the alchemists. So anyway, uh, just to move on here, the second item is what I referred to earlier when I said that Jung used the term uh, the New Age and the Age of Aquarius. It was in a letter to Peter Baines, and it's in this book, C.G. Jung Letters. This is volume one, which covers the years from 1906 to 1950. And then the third item in Radio with Pictures is Dr. Merritt's book, The Cry of Merlin, Jung, the Prototypical Eco-Psychologist. It's actually the second volume in his four-volume series, The Dairy Farmer's Guide to the Universe. (laughs) What a title. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, and then he talks about- Which, of course, in in which book he's referring to the milk of human kindness? Uh, Oh, uh, Sorry. Don't make me laugh again. I couldn't stop laughing before. Uh, so let's see here. Do I have? Yes. So I have uh, Jerome Bernstein's book, Living in the Borderland. And the last time I was here on the show, uh, was it last month? I talked a lot about this. We were talking about Trump. And I mentioned uh, Dr. Bernstein's work uh, and he talks a lot about climate change and do you remember how in radio with pictures we had a photo? It's still there. I I just don't remember the date of the show. Who was I on with? Do you remember Richard? Nope. My mind's fuzzed tonight. (laughs) Yeah, mine too. There was a photo of some men playing golf. Oh yes. This was playing golf in front of the raging forest fire. In front, yes, and so which I found was, so incredibly appropriate to where we are right now. Oh. Talking about dissociation, and so, and when you guys were talking about how gravity is, 
Bernstein talks about how entropy, it just is, whether you like it or not, entropy is. And, no, not, uh, that's not true, though. No? Because okay. you can use torsion field physics technology to negate entropy, to literally reverse entropy. Did you see the story the other day, Rick and Laura, about the um, um, doctors who were finding that if they put uh, people in a hyperbaric chamber on a regular schedule for several months and they bring them out after a couple of hours and put them back in, that their telomeres, which are the genetic markers at the end of your, your genomes, which are normally as you get older, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's in the model why we age, that they actually can extend. The telomeres grew by 20% with this simple, you know, doctor's office procedure, putting a patient in a hyperbolic, a hyperbaric chamber. Uh, when I had the heart attack 20 years ago, that's where they put me. Now, they didn't do it for several months. Darn. But now I know that I should go looking for a hyperbaric chamber, et cetera, et cetera. How long were you in there? Um, for, well, periodically for several weeks, I would go in like once a week and it was to, you know, saturate the system with oxygen because when you have a heart attack, that's one of the things that's, that happens is your blood flow reduces oxygen to your organs and to your brain, et cetera, et cetera. So I had this infusion, uh, courtesy of Robin and her amazing connections for the hyperbaric treatment post, uh, my problem and, you know, it must have done something because I haven't had a twinge since, and it's been, you know, a generation, 20 years. Would you describe this hyperbaric chamber? Is it a room? No, 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 no. It's it's like it's like an old oxygen, not oxygen, an old um, um, uh, iron lung. And I was in a hyperbaric chamber for an hour and a half at this amazing healing center in Bali, and it basically was an airtight tent. And basically, Laura, what it is, is they just increase the atmosphere. Yeah. They okay. increase the atmosphere of pressure and pump in oxygen. And, oh. they, and, and, and you lie in there, you know, on a very comfortable bed. You can either read or you can go to sleep or you can meditate yep. or whatever for like an hour. And then they would, you know, turn down the valves and the uh, hyperbaric oxygen, the excess oxygen would drain out and you go back to normal atmosphere. Well, what these guys found was if they do that rhythmically over a period of several months, the telomeres grow 20% longer. And it's been touted as the magic secret of reversing aging. And there's, of course, going to be a huge amount of research into this. The other occasion, this is why I know that this is not just oxygen. The other occasion where uh, NASA found the same phenomenon was when Scott Kelly the brother of Mm. Mark Kelly, who's the new senator from Arizona. Scott Kelly spent a year in the ISIS space station in, you know, microgravity, normal oxygen, normal nitrogen, partial pressure, et cetera, et cetera. But the difference was he was whirling around the earth at 18,000 miles an hour for 12 months for a year. And lo and behold, when he got back and they compared his telomeres with those of his twin brother, Scots were longer. And of course, I'm probably one of the only people on the planet, except for the Chinese, that know why. Because when you're whirling around the Earth in a spacecraft, Rick, you have changed your angular momentum. You're rotating at a different rate than the planet you were born on. And so the telomere extension under those circumstances for me is perfectly 
anticipated and predicted by the torsion field model. And the Chinese have a whole bunch of research that's totally separate that I can't go into tonight. But this is one of those really amazing areas where can be reversed. Glad I brought that up. Yes, that's too. Re- yeah, I didn't know that. We are not prisoners of entropy nor gravity. Okay. Okay, we got about 10 minutes to, to the end of the show. Who wants to talk about what they have not been able to talk about all evening? I've got some things. Yeah, your turn. Just a little bit. Uh, I touched on this earlier. Psyche's part of nature. That's at the core of this paradigm shift. Uh, we don't have absolute power. We can't. Cha- I don't know if you're going to like this, uh, Richard. We can't change the laws of nature uh, or make science do what we want it to do. Uh, take everything um, from nature and make it subservient. So, um what do, you, what do you say to that? Well, there's a difference. Joseph Farrell and I have had this discussion over many years. Remember Joseph's big bugaboo that we're trying to maintain a high-tech civilization in a closed system? System, okay. And mm-hmm. it's doomed to failure because every time you have a closed system, you get entropy. The only way to defeat entropy is to go outside the closed system. Right. We're right. in a 3D solar system universe think as big as we want to, a closed system. The only way that the telomeres of Scott Kelly were were extended is by introducing factors and energies and information from outside the closed 3D system. Mm-hmm. Ergo, yes, we can cheat Mother Nature. We just have to be very, very clever in how we do it. All right. That's all I have. <laughs> Rick, your turn. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you, rather than give you an open-ended canvas with only you know eight minutes to go. If you don't believe of the astrology of specific events, like you can tell us when Trump will finally say uncle and leave, talk about trends. Talk about what these conjunctions and the eclipse and the Jupiter-Saturn thing and the other things are going to happen in 2021 are going to do to the trends. Well, okay. So three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, I could have told you what I'm going to tell you now. Okay. And it is that in 20 years, in a hundred years, and if the species is still around in a thousand years, our ancestors know our descendants We'll look back and go the period of time from 1960 to 2025 was maybe one of the most important inflection points in the cultural evolution of the human species. And 2020 was a seminal year, again, like Martin Luther uh, beginning the Protestant Reformation. I mean, it's like we do not, when you're in the midst of an event, you do not have the perspective that you gain over time. We all have events in our lives that when we were going through them, we were so busy doing this, responding to that, dealing with the loss of job, getting married, changing this, doing, and then we look back at it 30 years later and we go, wow, that year was the most important year of my life because. Yeah, well, so you're, this, what you're talking about is what we used to call Monday morning quarterbacking. <laughs> no, I'm not at all. I'm saying 
I'm, I'm saying that I, I could have told you this and did in my videos several years ago that 2020 would be this kind of year. Astrology absolutely can predict the relative importance of moments. It so you also, so you so you could have predicted 2020 is going to be a hell of a year, but you no, couldn't. No, I could have. I did. But and so did every other competent astrologer on the planet. But you couldn't tell us why. The specific events no, were not. We could part. tell you why. We couldn't tell you what. When I when I say why, I mean the what. In other words, okay. COVID nineteen is the why. This year is you know and as horrible as uh, that's the why. No, no, COVID, it's also COVID-19. a what. COVID-19 is not why. COVID-19 is a symptom of the why. The why is a pandemic of fear based upon a collision of paradigms. COVID-19 is a symptom of that fear. COVID-19 is not the uh, underlying disease. Uh, the whole racial systemic um, you know, explosion that occurred through the summer of 2020 is, is system, systemically no less important than the COVID explosion. They're both symptoms of a deeper um, why, and that why I certainly can can tell you about and talk about all day, all night, but you would say it's Monday morning quarterbacking <laughs> because largely it has already happened. However, it has yet still to play through, and I don't think anyone can tell you how it's going to play through because even the people who were in charge, even the people who were you know, conspiratorially uh, working some game. So there's no one, everyone's lost control. No, no one is in charge anymore. Parents aren't home. Anyone who says they know doesn't. And, and anyone who's predicting the future is pulling it out of the air in some way. And some of them will be right and others will them, of them will be wrong. Hmm. Okay. So looking forward, we got about a minute. Um, other than the trend that chaos will reign, I mean, I, I think the significator is the president refusing to leave, uh, which has never happened in human history before in the United States, of course, uh, is emblematic of the age in which we are, in that the collision of these epochs, these eras, is turbulent, noise, noisy, um, uncertain, unpredictable, right? Yes, and that is because, as Laura said, once the planets begin to move into Aquarius, they are squaring Uranus in Taurus. This will be a subject of another program that we'll have in a month or three about 2021 and the distant, the difference between 2021 and substantial. 2021 has its own set of issues, but they are not about the destruction of the existing system. Instead, they are about the conflict between the old and the new and the old being Saturn squaring Uranus, the new and so archetypally, we can make predictions like this, but how it unfolds, I can't tell you. Hmm. An appropriate note to leave us on, because we are literally at the end of The Other Side of Midnight. I want to thank my guests, Laura London and Rick Levine, for an extraordinarily interesting and wide-ranging conversation and a uh, cautionary note. If you think you know what's coming, you don't. Okay. Hey, good night, everybody. Um, next week, we are going to have some extraordinary surprises. On, on Saturday night, we're going to do the Chinese thing with the moon. We're going to pick up on Utah because something will happen. And on Sunday night, we have a hell of a surprise. So until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. 
and stay safe out there. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.